What song is that? Can you hear that? Uh, it's like a Billy Joel song. I've been had it for the long. Oh my god, I hate that song. Whoa. For the longest. No, I don't like that song. The crew across the street that's re- that's rebuilding this house is uh, listening to some Billy Joel, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I was thinking about this whole life casting. Remember life casting? <laughs> I had almost sort of totally forgotten about this. It was this, I- this idea. So it was around, you know, 2005, 2010, that kind of time period. Uh... Something like that, but the idea that using the internet to transmit a video feed, a live video feed, at some point became feasible because people had you know better modems and stuff, and so people came up with this idea: why not just uh, why don't we broadcast our entire life, 24 hours a day? People can, can look in on us, right? And um, I remember there was actually earlier. I'm not sure when it was, but th- there was a TV show called Big Brother <clears throat> where these people living in a house, and it was a TV show. You know, they were sort of stuck in this house, and they had all these contests, and they, they had to vote to kick each other out, that whole thing. I don't know if that show's still on, but I remember season two. My wife and I were really into it. This I forget. Ex- I'd have to look up when this was, but probably somewhere in the vein of, like, 2004 or something, 2005. Again, that kind of time period. And uh, you could you you could uh, subscribe to watch to have a video feed to watch them in the house twenty four hours a day, right? So we subscribed, and I remember, like uh, when they were actually filming stuff for the show, they went to uh, a shot of the front of the house, or people would call it FOH, front of house, and it was frustrating because you paid this money to watch these people. 24 hours a day and then they they had these blockages when you know thing you you, you know they had the eviction ceremony or whatever and you're not allowed to see it because you had to, the show is going to be that night but there's something very cool about just sitting there just hours and hours on end just watching these people listening to their conversations um right and i don't know if i don't think that continued i think they may have done that for a few more years but I don't think that feature continued. So there was this fascination with that. And then there was this uh, movie that I talked about recently on the show here called We Live in Public. And it was a guy who created Pseudo.com, like the first internet television station. And he created this underground bunker in lower Manhattan that, again, would a bunch of people, like like 50 people were living there almost like bees in a hive and like their every moment was filmed like there were the cameras everywhere right and again that was sort of a life casting thing right and then more recently there was uh I'm trying to piece this together I know I talked about it on the show there was a, there was a show about these people in Hollywood living in this house together they all were sort of pursuing their dreams um it was the lyrics to like a, an Elvis song, uh, something about to dream, um, to live it is to dream it or something. And that also was sort of like a live 24-hour feed, but I don't even think it was on TV. It was just sort of an internet show. So there's these people in this house 
I think I think they, again they created a TV show for the inter- an internet TV show. Um, and then, but then you could just watch them. I think it was free. You could just watch them live, like twenty four hours a day in the house. And you could interact with them. Like there was a chat room, and whatever you typed in showed up on a screen. I know this sounds like today's Twitch, but there weren't that many people watching. So I remember they were having like pancakes for breakfast or something, and I, I just commented, "Wow, those pancakes look really good." And one of the one of the contestants on the show, or one of the people there. Yes, Frank Nora. Yes, the pancakes were great, Frank Nora. <laughs> I think I may have gotten a recording of that. I I know I talked about it on the show back then. This again was a long time ago. Something to dream, like if if I can dream. Maybe it was called If I Can Dream. Yeah, and it was made by some producer that worked on American Idol or something like that. Um. I know I could look all this stuff up, but listen, listen, that's, that's not important. I'm just talking about life casting in general. Um, but this idea that, that you would sort of – people were doing it. They were becoming life casters, and there were like two big sites, Justin TV and Ustream were the two big sites that sort of were associated with this. But then people started using them for various live streaming, and, and I used them. I think more Ustream than Justin TV. I I used I mean maybe that guy Justin was life casting I don't know, and I saw some sort of article from 2007 that UStream was giving out like 25 uh, like they were granting these people if they would life cast themselves like a free subscription or something. <laughs> but anyway, I used UStream and perhaps Justin TV as sort of an adjunct to a bunch of my shows back in that uh, time period, and. Um, now that I'm sort of – see, I've always felt – and it is true. The Overnightscape Underground is an audio format. But I, a couple of years ago, I started this project of – maybe a little over a year ago – a tape land video where I'm trying to include some of my important historic videos um, in the archive here of the Overnightscape Underground because this is stuff I made back in the 80s and um, sometimes the 90s and uh, – you know, it was some it, it stuff that if I think I should preserve it now, right, as opposed to later. Uh, while we are still certainly an audio format, I think in some cases I do want to preserve uh, video. And um, as you know, recently I did tape land video of In Ramble, that video project I tried out in uh, 2008. And I thought that was an incredible video. I love that. That was a bit more recent, but it was a video project. So now I'm trying to sort of round up all of the video stuff that I've done to try to release in Tapeland video. And as you may have noticed, over the weekend, I uh, I did actually release uh, Manny's tape of the Andy Kaufman press conference. Uh, we'll get to that in, in, in a minute, but I thought that was sort of the, an example of the kind of video I want to preserve. But there's a lot of this Ustream stuff that I think is lost, because I never really intended, I don't think, to preserve it uh, in an archive. But now I would kind of like to but I think some of it's lost. Now, pretty much everything that w- had a video associated with it, the audio was in the archive. So, for example, I had a thing, a very brief thing called Sneaky TT Broadcasting System, which was a concept where on video I was uh, in, I sort of wore a strange costume. I was in the corner and commenting on these public domain videos from the federal government. Um, and I think I used Ustream for that. And at some point, I know I tried to see 
it's always possible I did download them somewhere, so I, I have a vast amount of digital information that I have not really gone through. I'm, I'm kind of thinking of getting one of those huge hard drives, you know, those NAS hard drives, like 30 terabytes or something, and trying to sort of load onto it like all of my old hard drives and CDRs and DVDRs, something like that, at least of the material that I created. I also feel like in my old backups, I, I have probably a bunch of uh, old podcasts that probably podcast episodes from back in the early days of podcasting, talking 2004, 2005, 2006, um, that uh, perhaps no one else has. So that's something I kind of want to do. So it's a ch- there's a chance I may have downloaded some of these Ustreams. But I do recall contacting the, the company, which I was still around. This was a number of years ago. And saying, you know, I, I noticed that when I logged in, like, my videos were gone or whatever. And they're like, yeah, you know, we don't some, – something happened that they – my account lapsed or they changed ownership or something and all the videos were gone. Though I could have downloaded them using whatever method uh, at some point. I don't think I did. So those Sneaky TT videos. And then I know I did a few broadcasts of the, do this show, The Overnightscape, also a, as a Ustream. And I'm not sure – I don't think any of those survive. And then back in 2009 when I was on uh, WFMU, I uh, I did a, like a Ustream in association with the show. So like I, I remember <laughs> like since I was sort of – I was the, the new DJ there, I had to sweep the floor during my show. I took it seriously. So there was a video of me like – in a forlorn way while I was playing audio of me walking around New York City, I would just, you'd see me sort of with this huge janitorial broom kind of sweeping <laughs> sweeping the hallway <laughs> on live video. Those, I think, are gone too. So anyway, I, again, you know, the audio is there. But now I'm sort of an arch, arch, archivist mind. I, uh, I want to sort of preserve everything now. And video, of course, is difficult because it's much heavier in terms of weight, in terms of uh, the amount of bits and bytes it takes up. So anyway, um, I don't know that I have any of that stuff, but I might. But it sort of brought to mind that this life casting and Justin TV and everything, that's sort of – it's this sort of phase of society or this internet culture that's completely gone now, right, you know? You don't hear, I mean, as whereas online video is more popular than ever via whatever you want to say, the TikTok and Instagram or whatever, it's very much about short-form videos, not anything long-form. So you might say it was almost sort of interesting that you could sort of tune into someone's life and even though it's very mundane, be very fascinated by it. Now it's more 30-second, a-minute clips that are meant to sort of have just novelty value, right? But I don't know. I don't know if anyone is still doing life casting. If so, if anyone's watching. But, uh, yeah, Ustream. I actually had to look that up. I I remember Justin TV, but Ustream, I completely forgot the name. I looked it up this morning. Uh, It's the letter U-S-T-R-E-A-M. You know, not like YouTube. It's Ustream. Um, Yeah, I don't know whatever happened to these companies. But anyway... um, as I mentioned, uh, another video that was semi-lost uh, was of this Andy Kaufman press conference, right? Um, 
it's interesting. I've been so that's also from two thousand eight. So the last two tape led videos were from two thousand eight. Uh, yeah, that that was definitely a wild time. Two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, twenty ten. That to me, that was a time of great experimentation, transition. It's a time where this show, The Overnightscape, kind of died and was reborn, right? And uh, in the midst of it, this whole Andy Kaufman situation. And it was funny because I had to actually write a little bit of description about this, the video, Manny's video. So I sort of had to recap and kind of go over this whole Andy Kaufman thing once again. (coughs) A situation that I might certainly rather just leave in the past because ultimately it was kind of... Uh, it was just too much after a while. Uh, but to recap, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's a comedian named Andy Kaufman. He was very popular in the 70s and early 80s on television. And he was sort of a surreal comic. He came up with these always breaking the fourth wall and breaking the rules and uh, cr- doing all this crazy stuff. He died in 1984 of, of cancer. And um, it, from the from the moment he died, a lot the the uh, the rumor came out that he faked his death, that this was his final stunt or final hoax, and he was still alive. And everyone had heard that and stuff. Um, so in two thousand eight, as I as I've sort of been talking about, right? The, I started off two thousand eight doing these in ramble videos. I was thinking maybe I'll I'll have a video show online. And if you saw it, it's like over five hours long. The collected in ramble, I think, is amazing. But at the time, you know, it didn't get any response whatsoever. I didn't know how to, you know, if it was really worth pursuing it. I was thinking, oh, this could be a cool new opportunity. I'm already doing my audio show, maybe this video thing. But it it, it went over like a lead balloon, as they say, or a Led Zeppelin. It didn't really... And I know I, I could have promoted it more this and that, but I didn't want to start to like invest huge amounts of time and energy into it. I thought it could be a cool side thing, but I kind of gave up on it, you know. Though watching it, I'm like, wow, this was kind of cool. There was something going on here. But yes, this is mostly this is an audio project. Anyway, on eight eight oh eight, August eighth, I was thinking of bringing back, continuing with the. Uh, in ramble concept, but my my uh, little video camera broke. It just it, it just stopped working. I didn't for for whatever reason it completely died, and I sort of took that as you know I'm not going to buy another one. I, let's just forget about this whole video thing. And then I started doing this show called The Rampler, where I was recording it while walking around New York City on my daily commute, as opposed to recording in my home studio, right? And this allowed me to spend less time at home because it had been as it is a hobby it was becoming kind of overwhelming I would lock myself in my room all day my wife was in the other room I would be doing my show and I'm like this is kind of ridiculous I should use the time I have kind of otherwise wasted on my commute right it was definitely kind of inspired by In Ramble making New York City itself one of the characters on the show basically so um, I started doing that and I did the show more frequently and it had a bit of a different vibe I still don't know why I didn't just call it the Overnightscape, but it became this separate show for whatever reason. And uh, also that was a time when I was a heavy Twitter user. I was, you know, an earlier adopter in Twitter and uh, would tweet like 100 times a day or something. And uh, so at the same time, there's this guy who calls himself Steve Maddox, 
from Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, who has had already been for a number of years pretending to be Andy Kaufman on the internet and causing and creating all sorts of uh, noise on the internet that he was Andy Kaufman, that Andy Kaufman was still alive. So he was someone that had really taken this concept and was trying to spread uh, information online about this. So if someone started searching for Andy Kaufman, is he really still alive? They would they would be uh, they would get on this sort of uh, rabbit hole, the, 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 this sort of bread breadcrumb trail, and find all of this stuff online that this guy Steve Maddox was was putting online on message boards and videos, and I mean he just sort of co- was. Uh, spending a huge amount of effort uh, doing this to sort of, and this is sort of over after I haven't had any contact with him in years, but we have communicated with him a number of times, and he uh, and we actually saw his face because he mistakenly f- flipped over his camera on some sort of live video thing we were doing. But anyway, uh, the the we we don't really understand. We understand the story. This guy. If that's even his real name, Steve Maddox, his goal was to seed the internet and its records with all of this incidents and posts and rumors and mysteries about Andy Kaufman still being alive. Why, though? Why would he care so much? And I think he himself was trying to tell this story. I don't know if there's any truth to it that Steve Maddox's father. I'm not sure what his name was, was a friend of Andy Kaufman's and was among Andy's circle, closest circle. He knew he was dying. and he asked, So this is my assumption that he asked his inner circle of friends to please continue to perpetuate this myth that he, that he faked his death because he thought, even though he was really dying, that if people thought he had faked his death, it would be the greatest hoax in history and keep them guessing. So Steve Maddox then would have learned about this from his father and took, took taken on the responsibility to continue this, almost sort of like a sacred trust. At some point, he said, Steve Maddox said on one of our the times we were talking to him, it's like, you know, I really don't even want to be doing this with my life, but I have to. I made a promise or something like that. And again, he admired obviously the the hoax angle of things. He was he really into a- Alan Abel. I did have wind up interviewing Alan Abel, who's a very famous hoaxer. I have to say that for me personally, hoaxing is my least favorite thing. I don't like hoaxing. I don't get a kick out of it. It's not my thing in the least. But I was for me, my show, the Overnightscape and the Rampler to tell to to find interesting stories and interesting ideas out there and t- talk about them I while I was never the biggest Andy Kaufman fan and I certainly was not as obsessed as many of the people who were involved were I found the story of a guy pretending to be Andy Kaufman to be actually really interesting right So anyway his Steve Maddox's goal seemed to be to uh just create as much impression on the internet as he could. So he created this sort of permanent record of questions and theories about this topic. He didn't particularly care how he did it, it seemed. 
he was just striking out in all directions. And he was search. He said he was searching Twitter for all these phrases, weird conspiracy theories, things like that. And he found me because I posted about all this kind of stuff again, hundred times a day back then. Maybe not literally, but maybe literally. <laughs> I was tweeting a lot back then. So he struck up a conversation with me claiming to be Andy Kaufman and I did an interview with him where he used a voice changer so for a while he was continuing to say he was Andy Kaufman right Um, and eventually he decided to put on this press conference in New Brunswick, New Jersey in a hotel in New Brunswick, New Jersey and invited me to be the host I kind of thought that at the time I didn't really know Again, so this was in November, no, this press conference was Sunday, November 9th, uh, 2008. Um, I was like, who knows? Maybe I'll actually meet Andy Kaufman, who was actually still alive. Or maybe Steve Maddox will uh, let me in on what's actually going on here. You know. So I went to the hotel the night before um, with Manny and Rule. Yeah, that was a very wild weekend. There's a recording of me and Manny and Rule uh, driving around to like like my my old apartment, my grandmother's house. We went to that Edison site, Thomas Edison Tower in Edison, um, not the one in West West Orange, the one in uh, Edison. Anyway, named after him. But anyway, um, so I stayed in the hotel that night. And uh, Steve Maddox came to my room wearing a monster mask, but still pretending to be Andy Kaufman. Um, he, he never let me in on the secret. But, of course, everyone that came to the press conference thought that I was in on the whole thing. And I wasn't. And that sort of showed me, when it comes to all these conspiracy theories, as you can find an image of Andy Kaufman online in one of his TV shows, he said, that which is unknown is magnified. He was quoting a Greek philosopher or something. And people just sort of assumed that I was part of the whole thing. Even though I was not. I, I just thought it was a fun thing to tell the story of and be a part of. And now I'm still telling the story of it. I'm only talking about it now because I finally released Manny's video on our, you know, in our archive. Anyway... Um, so the next day was the, was the press conference, and again, I w- other than meeting him for a few minutes, with he was wearing a monster mask, so I was in the same room as this guy, and definitely was him because I I knew his eventually knew his real voice. He definitely was not Andy Kaufman. Um, he had a whole crew with him, so we went in this. So you can see in the video that I just posted the Andy Kaufman press conference. The image I made an image from screenshots. You see one of the people in, in the monster mask and the hood, and then this guy Chris Gethard taking pictures, and then on a piece of furniture he had put these letters that spelled out the Andy Kaufman press conference, but I superimposed, there was a close-up frame of that type, and I superimposed it so it was better resolution, so that's kind of a new a new image, but um, yeah, you can see we all went there, it was me, Manny the Mailman, Chris Gethard, who was serving as a reporter for Weird New Jersey magazine, but he later became like his, like a TV star himself. I don't know whatever happened to him, but he apparently, yeah, he's... Uh, and he was the most angry with me. He's like, okay, Rampler, because um, Steve Maddox kept calling me during the, the press conference. 
like, okay, Rampler. He was like angry at me. And then he, he, he chased them down the highway and stuff. But he's doing his own thing, whatever. His own internet gags, whatever. I don't know what he was up with him. There also was this reporter, Jen, and, and her photographer, and this guy, Bryce, from WFMU, right? And so the press conference turned into like a big nothing. It, it, like nothing really was, was revealed. It, it was sort of, I guess, meant to be like a big gag, a big hoax. It, like there was nothing really revealed. But it left a big impression, which is what he wanted. And later, I believe he did tell me, because I did speak to him on the phone a few times in the years following that, that he had recruited his friends and family from Indianapolis to participate in this event. Uh, I'm not really sure why they went along with him or if he expressed that it was important to him or they all knew that the family was responsible for perpetuating this myth about Andy Kaufman because there were people uh, like, uh, what's his name, Um, Bob Zamuda, who I did meet briefly around that time pretending to be Tony Clifton on a street in New York City, and what's her name that was Andy Kaufman's girlfriend forget her name, but they all sort of seemed to be sort of aware of Steve Maddox, but weren't necessarily like supporting what he was doing, but I guess they, if they all sort of understood that it was Andy's dying wish that they had people perpetuate this that he was doing, he was doing that, so they sort of left him alone, I don't know so whatever the episode of the Rampler is, it says Andy Kaufman press conference on, on the archive, you can hear the entire of event in audio with lots and lots of stuff. But Manny, the mailman, had some sort of uh, <laughs> old-school video camera. Obviously, this is a time, in this time period, 2008, 2009, the, the phones didn't, they had video, but it wasn't very good. So he had some sort of video camera. So he made, took a half-hour video, and he uploaded it to Yahoo Video, which was one of the video hosting sites back then. And I, had, and I you know, Again, I sort of, my audio was what I was focused on, not the video. But now that I've been doing the Tableland video project, I thought of that video and tried to find it. And I talked to Manny a few months ago. And he's like, no, you know, Yahoo video shut down. The video's not there anymore. And he's like, the hard drive I had my video on crashed, so I don't have it anymore. But this guy, Kurt Clendenin, who was one of the, what I call the Andy Kaufman people, the people that were interested in this whole topic, he had uploaded a copy to Vimeo. But I didn't know if, he, if if it was his edit or his he altered it in any way. So I figured, why don't I try? I searched all my old hard drives. I found I had downloaded it from Yahoo Video in 2014. So I had a copy of Manny's original, which turned out to be identical to what Kurt had put online. But I had the original MPEG video, right? And Kurt's video, when it went up on Vimeo, seemed to have be lower, slightly lower quality. I mean, it's low quality anyway, but it was slightly lower quality. So I had the, the original. So that's what I released. I released the actual MPEG file that, I, that was Manny's uh, video. So I did that over the weekend. And though I'm not really interested in, in uh, reopening this can of worms of uh, the Andy Coffin thing, I thought it was very important that to sort of add that video to Tapeland Video. And it sort of brought all this other old video stuff to mind. So one thing that does seem to still exist is I did a thing called the Overnightscape Video Review. And I think those still exist on some long-forgotten YouTube account I had. 
But of course, you can download stuff off YouTube. So, not easily, but using some third-party systems. So, yeah, so that's like my mindset lately, trying to like find all my video archives that I should release. In other news, uh, yesterday there was an article about strange names that parents are giving their children, like they're starting to give like sons like weird violent names like Slayer, <laughs> you know, things like that. That really reminded me of uh, Flunt Artney and Zud Botnip, which I could have sworn I mentioned this on The Overnightscape in the past, but I couldn't find any reference to it in the show notes. It was some comedy sketch about these guys with weird names. That's all I could remember, Flunt Artney and Zud Botnip. And that just sort of burned in my memory for some reason. And for some reason, I was sort of I sort of mixed it up in my memory with um, Tim Conway's uh, Dorf on Golf. What was that all about? It was like uh, Tim Conway created this like this sort of diminutive character where he sort of was on his knees, but he put shoes on his knees, so he looked like this weird miniature person that was a like a golf instructor. His name was Dorf. So this idea of these weird names, but this had nothing to do with it apparently. So I started researching this, and apparently the name Zud Botnip is Flunt Artney is more easy to find than Zud Botnip, but um, I found out where it came from, and I actually found the sketch, and I could have sworn there was more because those two names, Flunt Artney and Zud Botnip, was like so preserved so strongly in my mind. It must be the because the comedy was about weird names. The sketch was about these weird, just the funniness of weird names. And uh, it took a while to find it, but it was on a TV show called The New Show, which I must have been watching, though I don't remember it by name. I know I've in- researched it and encountered it since then. It's uh, it was a sketch comedy show on NBC. Uh, produced by Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live fame that ran for one season from January 6th to March 23rd, 1984. Just a few months, right? I mean, like, a few months. Uh, So it was an hour long. It was pre-recorded. And I guess it was shown maybe 10 o'clock because they said it it got the lowest ratings of any show for the 83 to 84 television season. And it was up against Matt Houston and Falcon Crest. Uh... So it was a big failure, um, but it it had uh, cast members like Dave Thomas from SCTV, Buck Henry, uh, also uh, a lot of SNL alums, Lorraine Newman, Gilda Radner, Steve Martin, Buck Henry were on it, and um, so this is where Flute Artney comes from, and it's Dave Thomas and Buck Henry. So this was apparently from the ninth episode. Uh, with Terry Gar as the uh, as the host, remember Terry Gar? <laughs> Whatever happened to her? She was everywhere back then. Um, but yeah, so it actually says the Flunt Artney sketch with um, Buck Henry and, and uh, Buck Buck Henry as as Zud Botnip and uh, Dave Thomas as uh, as Flunt Artney. Um, this is the only one I could find, though. I there must have been something else with them because I can't imagine this sketch. Uh, was the only thing, but it's as far as I could find. It, this is the only thing I could find of Flunt Artney, and it's kind of a film noir parody. As you know, there's so many more parodies of film noir than actual film noir. 
I've talked about this in the past, how it's sort of this people sort of tend to parody film noir, even though no one even knows what film noir is anymore. Like, I'm a hard-boiled detective. A dame walked into my office. There's like a neon sign outside. It's like this weird trope. But anyway, let's let's check this out. Check out the sketch. Uh, just weird that it was so memorable, but Flunt, Artney, and Zud Botnip. And Terry Garr's in the sketch, too. <laughs> what was the whole thing with Terry Garr? Like, she used to be like a big guest on Letterman, and they would flirt all the time, right? See, 80s nostalgia. Uh, let's see. Hold on, here it is. Whoa, Laurie, Laurie Anderson was a, was a guest on the show? She, she was a musical guest on, on the new show? Wow, I'll have to find that. I'm a big Laurie Anderson fan. Anyway, let's see if we can check this out. I should have a link to this. Yeah, there's a, there's a page on the Internet Archive that seems to have all the episodes of the new show. It's a good place to find things like this. Let's see if we can get it here. I, so yeah, I, w- I was definitely watching a lot of TV back then. So I, this is definitely a time I would have been watching it. The new show with extra added comedy. Burger King. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Martin. This, this may actually be... this. I think this is the best of... that They released one episode that was the best of the new show. And this may be this episode. But we do get the flute artney in here. Here it is. Flute artney, private eye. And now it's time for another episode of Flute Artney, Private Eye. Flute. I had it. I had it reversed. Buck Henry is flute artney, and Dave Thomas is Zudbotnev. Flute artney. Why is it whenever we find a body, you show up five minutes later? I don't know. Lucky, I guess. Tell me, Zud. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's Sergeant Botnip to you, Artney. Okay. It's funny because I don't, like, in this sketch, they don't say Zud Botnip as a full name. Just that little exchange is, is the, the name. Okay, Botnip. Who's the stiff? Nesselfar. Chark Nesselfar. <laughs> Yeah, he's the president. So I guess I guess the whole like obviously the whole point of the sketch is that everyone has these bizarre names, which is funny for a few minutes. Of Twos Industries. Oh. Elsrit, you want to bring in Mrs. Nesselfar? <laughs> Wait outside, Clodbridge. <laughs> what do you think? Looks pretty cut and dried to me. Another rub out by the Lee Plus Lee gang. <laughs> That's too simple. I don't like it. Terry Gar. Sorry to disturb you, Mrs. Nesselfar, but I wanted to ask your permission to set up a 24-hour guard for your safety. What's with the gumshoe? The name's Artney. Flute Artney. <laughs> I read the papers. It's just that there's a stink that goes with you, and I don't like it in my house. <laughs> Sorry to impose while you're so upset, but before I go, does the name... Rard Dutz, ring a bell? He was a friend of my husband, I believe. He disappeared on a vacation in the Amazon. What's it to you? Yeah, what are you getting at, Artney? It's just that I've been doing my homework, Zud. This is 
this is not Mrs. Nestle Farb's first marriage. It seems eight years ago she was Mrs. Carpool Ploinair. Flute, are you trying to convince Sergeant Botnip here that Dutz Ploinar and Nesselfar are all tied up with twos? <laughs> You bet ammonia capsules. Nice. So I don't. I think that's it. That's like that's the entire, the entirety of the entire thing. I maybe there was more somewhere. I I don't know. I'm trying to fast forward here. I didn't scan through everything, but I think that was it. Left a big impression though. <laughs> Something so uh, sort of trivial could leave such a big impression. Well, TV, watching TV back in 84 was much different than it is now. I don't think... I think this may have been around the time we got cable television. But if if, if it was between Matt Houston... What was he? What was Matt Houston anyway? And uh, Falcon Crest. I, I probably would have not liked watching those shows. Matt, what was Matt Houston? I'm trying to see. Matt Houston... Starring Lee Horsley, Pamela Hensley. Who are these people? I don't even... And Bud, Buddy Ebsen was in it, too. Matt Houston, a crime drama. A, hel- a, a wealthy oil man who decides to hold a side job as a private investigator. I don't even remember this. I, I don't know who Lee Horsley... Yeah, Matt Houston. That's just... Okay, yeah. Some it looks somewhat familiar, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, he had kind of a, a, a Tom Selleck look with a big mustache. You know, a lot of a lot of times if you were an investigator, you, an investigator, you needed a big mustache for some reason. Oh look, there's wow, a bit of a synchronicity. Look, a, a related TV show is Nero Wolf, W O L F E. And of course, I've been talking about Gene Wolfe, the sci-fi author, who uh, I never heard of before last week, and uh, now I've read his first book. I, I, I mean, uh, I, yeah, I read the first book already. I think this is, uh, you know, as I've been mentioning on the show the past couple episodes, um, Gene Wolfe is someone that I never heard of. And his uh, his series of books called The Book of the New Sun, which is very highly regarded, is something that I never ran across, but I absolutely should have. So to me, I suspect it could be something where Gene Wolfe and his books were not in the reality that I was living in prior to a week or two ago, but somehow were merged into the past, which I know is uh, not a commonly... Commonly held to be impossible. The past is the past. It can't be altered. But this specifically, when I talk about these past editing paranoias, as I talk, peps as I call them, this is like the big, one of the biggest ones. And in fact, I was, I originally heard about it because it came up on my, my Google News feed, uh, an article about Gene Wolfe and, and the Book of the New Sun. I'm like, I never heard of this, but it sounds interesting. And then, um, to 
I, f- I found another reference to it. There's a file called uh, there's a f- site called textfiles.org with old text files that they used to uh, distribute on these BBSs and stuff. I'm trying to see if I can find it here. Sign in the science fiction subsection, there was. Uh, I'm trying to find. I'll find it here. A text file about the top fantasy novels, and let's see if I can find it. Hold on a second. Yeah, here it is. The results of the 1985 Usenet science fiction poll, right, where I guess they polled a bunch of people on uh, on Usenet, what, I guess what their favorite science fiction stories were. And uh, one second here, I'm trying to find it. Yeah. So, like, f- with the top one with 42 votes, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert A. Heinlein, then Lord of the Rings, Foundation Trilogy, Dune, Ringworld, A Moat in God's Eye, Star Tide Rising, I don't know that one, Childhood's End, Stranger in a Tra- Strange Land, Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny. So all these really big things. And then uh, with 19 votes, The Shadow of the Torturer, the first of the Book of the New Sun, Gene Wolfe. And then with 17 votes, the entire Book of the New Sun, Tetralogy by Gene Wolfe. So, like, from 1985, it's one of the top, like, the 10th or the 15th, like, on this list, including Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, iRobot, the the Amber series, Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Here's all this stuff, and I was never aware of it, and I would absolutely have remembered it. So what could be happening here? What is going on? Both in terms of... You know, I know the traditional explanation is that somehow I just never heard of it, but it was always there. I know that's what most people will think, and that is certainly the Occam's razor that somehow you just never encountered it, Frank. Or if you did, you forgot, as you know, I do readily admit that um, there's a lot of things that you know, every, every moment our memories are fading, and they fade into utter oblivion, and uh, you know... But things like this, I tend to remember. I tend to remember books and series and things like that. That there's not something I would just forget about. Kitty, what's the matter, Mojo? Kitty, <laughs> what's going on, Kitty? Um, but I've I've noticed too much of this stuff. I mean, it's a phenomenon where there's it's not just one, but there's a number of these things that pop up from the past that. I feel I should have already been aware of. So the, the-, the theory is that somehow the past is being edited or altered, which I know sounds rather hazardous. Which it is hazardous. Um, but not only is it being altered, but that I'm somehow being encountering uh, these things, right? Because obviously something could be added to the past, but if I never hear about it, I'll never know about it. But... It came up in my feed, and then I found it on this science fiction text file thing. and So it almost seems like uh, 
how how should we put this? It it almost seems like reality is like a work in progress, and things continue to be added to the past to make it richer and better. So if this is a series of books that's really good that never existed in this reality, to add it to this reality would be to enrich this reality, right? And by continuing to edit this reality, you keep making it better and better, right? There's something about this that I feel is, like just talking about this is giving me like a weird feeling because like, uh, right, like a work of art where these details continue to be added, building up something to make it greater and greater through this method of, of editing, not just the present or the future, but the past as well, that perhaps this is an indication of how the world is built in general, right? That it's basically more um, focused on um, the moment, the present, and building up what is around us, not just in the present, but in the past, to create a better and better world, a more pleasing world, right? There actually was a um, a section of a book. I think it was the second Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency book by uh, Douglas Adams, right, where it was something similar Kitty, what's going on? Um, the music of Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, apparently did not exist in the reality that Dirk Gently exist, lived in. But there was some, like, the best I can remember, it was like an alien satellite uh, revolving around the world. And this, the music of Bach was from, like, an alien world. And through the use of time travel, they sort of inserted it into the past as this incredible gift to to the world of Dirk Gently. And then it was something that was assumed to have been just from the past always, right? So it was sort of a similar idea, but it was considered like an enrichment, a gift, as opposed to, right, as opposed to anything negative, like meddling with the past to take over the world. But it was, it's like an enrichment of the world. But that... You could look at this in terms of, um, right, the world exists and as some extra thing now through the use of time travel or quantum technology or what have you, things could be added to our world newly into the past, right, as it, as, but it has nothing to do with how the world was created, but I would say that you could look at this phenomenon as how this world is built, right? And I think I did talk about this idea. It does relate to the phrase, what pleases the observer, that the entire universe as we know it could have started off with sort of a blank slate and just introducing like one thing, like one particle, and then another particle, and then things continued to uh, advance based on which patterns pleased the observer, right? There's an observer involved here. 
the source of consciousness perhaps, and that the patterns that please the observer tended to stay and the patterns that displeased the observer were set aside and that this reality we're living in and as we know we are observing it so we are the observer at some level right we are the observer observing these particular lives or human lives we're living but the observer itself does not seem it does not seem possible that the observer is these human beings that we are the act of observation and consciousness and awareness doesn't seem to be anything that a human being could include, right? We look at a human being as a uh, complex biomechanical entity that has a, a computer as the you know the brain, a biological supercomputer that's doing calculations interpreting uh, images and interpreting input and uh, things like that. When you think of that machine, there's nothing about that machine that could particularly be aware, right? In fact, as material science would relate it, it's simply a series of chemical reactions, electrical discharges, and, uh, you know, reactions to environmental stimuli there's nothing in there that would imp- that would allow or imply some sort of observation right you might say that um similar to those uh rube goldberg contraptions sometimes you'll see on youtube there's someone built this huge device where they have a ball rolling down a ramp and then it it hits into something that lights a candle the candle pops a balloon the balloon you know, makes another thing fall down, you know, those sort of contraptions, right? So it's it's a thing in motion and a series of steps. You've seen those things. But that's sort of what a human being is. It's, it is just a series of reactions to um, stimuli, like a stimuli. But again, awareness, consciousness would not be a part of that. I think people assume that just because your brain is doing calculations that involves some sort of observation, which would not be the case. I mean, so essentially the world that we're living in, as it's been described materially, could exist, but there would be no observation. There would be no one to observe it. It just would be chemical reactions without a mind behind it. But of course we know there is there is an observer because we're in that role. I can now speak to and describe... the that I am observing all this, right? So the idea that things are added to the past, enriching our reality, can be seen as as part and parcel of the actual mechanism by which reality is created, right? It's no different that everything in our world was sort of added to the past at some point, right? The idea that there is not really past, present, and future, but it's all sort of one big construct that is continually refined and improved through through this process with the observer at the heart of the process. Well, that's just an alternate way of thinking about, about the universe. But anyway, uh, this is quite an enrichment because this the, I read the first book already, and it's amazing. 
So anyway, I got the audiobooks and uh, started just listening to it on my computer. It's over nine hours long, the first book, the, the audiobook. And I just couldn't stop. I, over the past couple of days, I finished it, sitting in front of my computer playing like uh, weird solitaire games on Pysol and listened to the whole thing. Really, really impressive. Now, I would say that it does involve, uh, you know, the concept of this guild of torturers and torture as a topic. It's certainly not a, one of my favorite topics. I find it all very negative and not something I would like to dwell on. But I looked past that because the book is so good. Um, it actually reminds me a bit of uh, postmodern literature such as Thomas Pynchon and stuff like that in that it is – and people describe the writing as very dreamlike going off in all these different directions. And again, that feels very much like Pynchon. Um, the, so the style of the book is really right up my alley. Um, so it takes place in a far future Earth. So it's our world, but in the far, far future. Seemingly like after they developed uh, you know, space travel, faster than light travel, contact with alien races and everything else, and then at a future time the world had kind of um, collapsed back into a, a less advanced society. Um, though there's always these clues as to the nature of the world Focuses on Severian, who is a member of the to the Torturers Guild. He was sort of brought in as a child, and uh, living in this tower. And the story is, generally speaking, and this is it'll even say this on the book jacket. It's sort of a spoiler, but that he, through an act of um, mercy, you know, sort of allowing one of the uh, prisoners being tortured to, to kill themselves. He's kicked out of the guild and he's sent told to go to this distant city to be their executioner and he gets this sword called Terminus Est. That's like to me it's like super nerdy like these, these swords with names that sort of you know are a big part of the story. Um, so then it sort of follows him in his journeys around this city with all these people all this weird stuff and so the first book sort of, you know, ends even before he's sort of left the city. All these people he's meeting and their schemes and all these these weird like biodomes and these actors and just such a bizarre thing. What a great book. Incredible. I really loved it. And I started the next one, which is um, The Claw of the Conciliator or something like that, the name of it. Um, what an incredible book. I can't recommend it enough. I mean, it's uh, fits me perfectly, the type of fiction that I like, because it has that meandering uh, quality to it, very dreamlike. And also it kind of, it includes a, um, a type of, oh, I can't, how do I even describe this? It, it includes like those weird thoughts that you have in your head, like making these weird connections between things that happens in human life. Like you sort of have your, like weird things that you imagine and think about, but he sort of describes it kind of like, uh, I don't even know quite how to describe it. Kind of like, um, because, because Severian is kind of obsessed with, you know, the woman that he helped her die because she was being tortured 
And he was like in love with her and she was like this noble woman. And he would talk about how he thought like he saw her somewhere even after she died or something like that or someone reminded him of her. And I'm not describing it properly, but it's kind of like, like these weird sort of obsessive thoughts that people experience, but it's not usually sort of put into fiction as far as I, I know. Anyway, that's just one part of it. But, yeah, it's extremely weird and dreamlike. Like, there's these biodomes, and each one has, like, a different – like, one's like a desert, one's like a jungle. And it's sort of real – it implied that, like, a, like a lot of, like, the, the plants and stuff are just, like, from other planets and stuff. And the animals are sort of genetically modified. And But you're sort of all – it's all written from Severian's perspective because it's sort of like he's writing this as a journal. And he doesn't – he's not really – that expert in the things of the world as he was raised in a the torturer's tower is kind of in kind of an, an insulated way. Yeah. Utterly incredible. So I mean uh however you want to interpret this, as Occam's razor would say, it's simply as unlikely as it might seem, I never heard about this author or these books. That seems unlikely, but somehow, a traditional explanation, that's the answer. If they were just recently added, uh, maybe imported from some other reality, inserted into our past as a kind of gift, as a kind of enrichment to this reality, well, uh, that raises all sorts of other questions in terms of the nature of our reality, but just in general, well, gee, thanks, whoever did it, for adding this book to our reality, you know? And uh, I've talked to some people about it. A lot of people never heard of it. My brother never heard of it. But um, uh, Anne, who who commented on listener Anne commented on it, said that she she's familiar with him and had heard about him. So she remembers it. So the other way of looking at it is that um, not so much just piecemeal things are being added to the past, but that <clears throat> there's multiple versions of the world timelines and that similar but different coexisting realities that are for some reason merged together right and that that's how this happens is that um, two worlds are combined and each of us is combined there's two versions of us the version of, uh, of, my, of me from world A and world B merged together and then the history of the worlds are merged together as well and if it were done seamlessly no one would have any idea it ever happened right the next you'd wake up the next day reality would be changed but you would you would remember the averaged merged reality as the only thing that you remember which is not illegitimate because it's there's the idea is that you're inhabiting in some way both versions of you right though in the moment you're only able to access the memories of one version of you at a higher level you're sort of running all these multiple versions of you as as these characters and at the higher level you're aware of all of the memories of all of the versions of you so that when it's a, there's a merging going on it's all you but different versions of you have been merged but the process is not seamless there's flaws and mistakes in this merging process 
where, for example, this book, uh, Shadow of the Torturer, would exist in world A, but not in world B, right? So as each of us are, each of us ourselves are merged and the memories are supposed to enmesh and fold in, um, that it's not a perfect process. So some people would retain the memory from world A and some people would not have the memory from world A. So I'm, I'm, though I'm in this theory, I'm, I am a merged version of Frank Nora from A and B, right? The, the flaws in the process of merging, um, whereas the book came through, my memories of it didn't, right? And I know I did have a theory about this merging of worlds uh, as to why it happens. The idea would be that um, you as your higher self, as we sort of assume each of us exists as a, as a more advanced cosmic being, certainly not the ultimate being, the ultimate God, but the idea that God subdivides itself at all these different levels, that there's a version of my mind, of myself, that would be exist at a higher cosmic level and that I would be able to um, keep track of a certain number of alternate realities, all of which I'm living in as one person, right? That my capability, that the capacity of this, it could be that you could handle 10 or 15 of these worlds, but the more versions of the world you were keeping track of, the greater a strain it would be on your facilities, right? And the idea that you're developing these different worlds and when you get to up, if you have like 20 different worlds, it's becoming a great strain and that by merging them back together, you're able to bring it into in, back into a place where there's like eight or nine worlds or ten worlds that you're able to handle, right? That you have a, a limited capacity um, to uh, to follow all these different versions of you, and that's where the merging comes in because um, you can sort of retain what the value in these worlds, or perhaps that's even the process is that. Um, Again, this this it's very similar to what I was talking about, this endless growth and enriching of these realities. The idea is uh, developing them separately and then merging them together, almost like sort of biological plant hybrids in a way, that you're making hybrid realities, continuing to become much more, as e- with each merging, uh, more complex and more more rich in terms of their content. So, and I know also it feels very much like a merging of worlds. Would it be something that's imposed on us and it's not to our benefit, which I think some of the theories, people do talk about this when it comes to Mandela effect and things like that. They're thinking things like the CERN Large Hadron Collider causes reality to change and stuff. So is it something that's, away from us being imposed on us or ultimately is it something that we're sort of intimately involved with this you know and that building up of these worlds and merging them and building them up more it almost does sound like genetic evolution in a way right 
the idea that you know the two parents create an offspring right which we do observe happening obviously in animal life and human life in this case two timelines or two versions of the world merge together and create sort of a, an averaged version which would be almost sort of like the child so maybe evolution as a theory is is a reflection on the actual generation of reality could be <laughs> the heck getting some pretty heavy topics on a tuesday jeez this is too much for a tuesday and a way of looking at this that brings it into a little more mundane perspective is if this is all a computer-generated reality that we're living in, this idea that you're uh, living in multiple versions of these worlds all in a, in a computer simulation and then sort of uh, managing each of these worlds, needing to merge them together because there's only X number that you could realistically do as a means of generating content or generating art, right? Which really is sort of the ultimate determination, as you may remember when I was in Atlanta, Georgia, talking to those people that, that were selling jewelry at that marketplace. I'm talking about all these aliens, other worlds, and things like that. And I said, in the end, I think this world is basically an art project, and that's sort of why it exists. This then, everything I've been talking about, right, that the world is essentially like a work of art, that there is a creative spark that's involved here, a creative process that you're sort of living in these worlds as these characters and obviously forgetting who you really are and when you're in, somehow there's a, a means of creating a forgetfulness and that it is all an art project. It, this is all meant to be a work of art, right? In a computer simulation. That, that makes it easier to understand, I think, as a theory. Of course, all of this, there's no point, there's, there's no reason to think any of this has any legitimacy. They're all just thoughts and observations. I want to avoid belief. Yes. Anyway, getting to some more specific stuff. Uh, as I mentioned, recently I went, my wife and I went to this Indian grocery store over in Clifton, New Jersey, and bought some products. And I have a couple of them here. The, uh, what they call namkeen, N-A-M-K-E-E-N. Namkeen is kind of like uh, snacks. Because it says namkeen on the uh, packaging here, namkeen. Uh, namkeen is Hindi for savory snack foods, right? So there's this whole, it's like we have pretzels and potato chips and things like that and Cheetos. Uh, so namkeen is sort of the Indian equivalent. Let's see what it says on this uh, article here. If you have been around someone from India, been to India, or even just eaten Indian food, you may have heard the word namkeen. Namkeen is the Hindi word used to describe a savory flavor. The word namkeen is derived from the word namak, meaning salt, and is also used as a generic term to describe savory snack foods. Namkeen is pronounced numkeen. Okay, I've been pronouncing it wrong. Numkeen. Well, there's an A instead of a U, but we'll call it numkeen. Numkeen. Um, 
The typical Namkeen snacks in Indian cuisine include kara, farsan, shivda, sav, chips, and bujia. I don't know what those things are. Namkeen of Indore and Ratlam are two snacks very well known for their tastes. Anyway, they're just like salty snacks, right? So when I was last there, um, I got this one. It also was from Haldarams. It was really, really good. I think it was the Punjabi mix, if I'm not mistaken. And I did review it on the show here. This time, I, I didn't find that one, but I got the all-in-one, figuring this would contain everything. And I got this giant one-kilogram bag, a spice, all, Haldarams all-in-one, a spicy blend of chickpea, chickpeas, flour noodles, pulses, and rice flakes, right? And it does say Indian savory snack. Um, what are pulses? So it turns out pulses is a, is a word. It may be from British English, but I never heard this term. Is that for legumes, right? Pulses are the edible seeds of plants in the legume family. Dry beans, dry peas, chickpeas, lentils, etc., right? Lupins. They're all pulses. <laughs> so I didn't know that either. Uh, now, I'm not saying any of this stuff is like editing, past editing stuff. This is just, I just wasn't super familiar with these Indian concepts. Um, so what I read in my research, it seems that people like eating this in India. They like eating this during tea time. They have their afternoon tea, and they'll actually, I think, pour the namkeen into a bowl and eat it with a spoon, kind of like eating cereal, right? And this is kind of like a kind of a junk, a junk food. Yeah, they say it's really unhealthy, whatever, but it's very tasty. Um, so on the back here, it's written in English and then also Arabic. Um, contains all sorts of stuff. This one I felt was slightly disappointing compared to the Punjabi one because it has this kind of weird egg smell to it, which must be some sort of sulfur, some sort of preservative, but I can't really find a sulfur-based, uh, I don't think, preservative in here, but... Anyway, we're going to put this in a bowl. And then I also got this uh, vegan quick tea masala, instant, thai, instant chai tea latte. So this is basically, this reminds me a lot of, remember the International Foods International, General Foods International coffees? Remember that whole thing? It came in a little tin, and it was just a, basically a powder that you put in hot water, and it would make this uh, coffee drink. So this is really good. It's basically chai tea, but in this powdered form. But in, it uses um, coconut milk instead of uh, dairy milk. So let me put this all together. I've been having these. The quick tea is actually very good. It's sort of a category of product. It's, it's probably more similar to like the hot chocolate powders, right? But this is sort of a milk tea with the chai. It's very good. I'm really glad I found this. There was a lot more vegan stuff than I thought there would be. Because I think India is more vegetarian where they don't care about putting dairy and stuff. But no, there's a lot of vegan stuff there. We even got a bunch of uh, frozen vegan foods from Deep. And th they even have a chain of uh, restaurants in New York, Deep Kitchen, I think, D-E-E-P. Though, as I recall, the Deep Kitchen didn't have much vegan stuff. It was just vegetarian. Anyway, let me put together my, uh, my Indian tea time here and we'll do some reviews. All right, I have it all set up here. I have my tea. This is like tea time, all right? Mmm. Here's my bowl of uh, namkeen, all in one. So I think that this is, this is much looser than, like, if you had snacks like pretzels or potato chips, they're very much individual pieces. 
This, a lot of small pieces. There's like a puffed rice. There's these little chickpea flour noodles. There's some raisins in there, some peanuts. Ooh, there are actually cashews in here. And there's little little flakes, like bean flakes. But in general, it's it's quite a bit. It's almost like cereal. It's quite a bit. It'd be hard to eat because there's such small pieces, you know, so you eat it with a spoon. You know, it actually smells much better now. I don't know. It had more of that weird, maybe it was some sort of preservative overtone or something, but it's just, so eating it with a spoon like this is really cool. Like, it's, there's no milk or anything in it, but it's like eating a savory cereal. Mmm. Yeah. There's a little bit of that sulfuric egg kind of sense to it. So I'm not sure if that's uh, just a preservative, but... Mmm. It's really good, though. Beyond that, very tasty. A bit spicy. Lots of different textures. Mmm. Mm-hmm. Yum, yum. It's a good tea time. But yeah, that sort of overtone, that egg overtone kind of kind of ruins it a little bit. But once you, once you start eating it, it's very tasty. Not super salty. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of heat in there. Not too much. I mean, I'm, I'm on a high heat level myself, so. I can feel a little bit. Mm. But I saw this idea of eating like this, this, uh, Namkeen with a, with a, in a bowl with a spoon and tea. Let's try this out here. Mm. It's very good. Re- really, really tasty. Like a chai milk tea. I definitely miss this kind of thing. I usually don't, I don't ever put milk in my tea or coffee, but this style is, has its place in, in the beverage arts, you know. I want to look up General Foods International coffees. <clears throat> do they do they still sell it? Uh, yeah, it looks like there is a version of it still, Maxwell House International. But I think you have to go to like an eBay or something to find the uh, the original tins, because everyone had these. I mean, like it was it was. My mother always had them in the cabinet. My grandmother. Um, let's see. Yeah, like here's a uh, Irish cream cafe, Irish style flavored instant coffee, single serving pack, sort of a collectible. Swiss mocha. That yeah, that was another one. Swiss mocha. Double Dutch chocolate. I'm, there's like ads here, but I want to see because I know I've seen. Yeah, here's like a collectible General Foods International coffees, and that was typeset in Peñol. My God, what incredible. Is that Peñol, though? It is Peñol, yeah. The Mary Tyler Moore font. Swiss mocha, Swiss-style instant coffee beverage with NutraSweet. <laughs> Jeez, that definitely looks very 80s. You know, but you wonder, I, I mean, I guess it just was a product that I guess less and less people were buying at some point. So it, again, it still exists um, in, in the Maxwell House International brand, but I'm trying to. I'm still trying to find kind of a um, 
One of those original tins. Yeah, yeah, a lot of six vintage General Foods International coffees. Yeah. Mm, yeah, no. These look these look a bit later in the process. I want the ones more from the 70s or early 80s. These look like 90s ones. But they have uh, Italian cappuccino, hazelnut, Belgian cafe, <laughs> French vanilla cafe, naturally decaffeinated, and then they have with caffeine, French vanilla and artificial flavor. See, artificial flavor used to not be this. People now call it natural flavor, even though artificial flavor is more just pure chemicals, whereas natural flavor is the similar chemicals that are derived through a natural process that some people felt might actually be less safe than just using these blatant chemicals. This French vanilla cafe, an artificial flavor Parisian-style flavored instant coffee. All right, hold on. Let me just go to this. Let's see. <coughs> International coffees. Let's see. See if we can find out like a good tin. Mm, yeah, orange cappuccino. That looks like the older one. But I'm trying to think. Cafe Francais. Yeah. I want to see if we can find one that just sort of Cafe Amaretto. That definitely looks like the. This is a 1970s one. Roman style instant coffee beverage. <laughs> It, yeah, the Swiss Mocha, that's a good one. Pre-owned. Well, I imagine it is pre-owned. Otherwise, what, was it a free, an object that owned itself? I mean, come on. Cafe Amaretto. I'm sure people collect this stuff. I mean, food packaging is really a fascinating collecting field that if I didn't have so much else going on, I definitely would want to do food packaging collecting because it's, it's a true collectible, right? Because it's, it was never meant to be a collectible. There's so many. I wonder if there's a reference to all the different flavors they ever had. Look, Kahlua, the Kahlua version, that looks much more recent. But Yeah. Rare vintage 1970s General Foods International Coffee Tin Cafe Amaretto. Yeah. And that old General Foods logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see what it contained. There's no year on it, I don't think. Is there a year? General Foods Corp. White Plains, New York. The Maxwell House Division. Contains sugar, hydrogenated coconut oil, corn syrup, solids, instant coffee, tripotassium citrate, AIDS dissolving. Nasty stuff. <laughs> Tetrasodium pyrophosphate. Trisodium citrate. Oh, my God. <laughs> Mono and diglycerides, emulsifiers for uniform dispersion of oils. They're like describing like the the re the reasoning behind these ingredients. I doubt what I'm having now is that much that much better. I'm sure it's a uh, yeah nice. These are like thirty bucks, twelve bucks. I mean, it'd be cool to collect them. Imagine having a complete collection of every version they ever produced. Yeah. What about the Kahlua Cafe? When is this one from? Uh, copyright KF Holdings. But there's no dates on these things. It would be good if there's a date on them. General Foods International Coffees. It's how to unplug TM. <laughs> that was their slogan. It's how to unplug. <laughs> Great. Unplug? Uh, aren't people considered more wired when they're drinking coffee? Mexican style coffee drink. Wow. It's only $15.88.
for an empty tin. How do they describe it here? Do they have a year? Rare, great condition. They just call it rare. It is rare. Yes. Here's a 1978 ad. So this actually dates it. Swiss Mocha, Orange Cappuccino, Cafe Vienna, and Cafe Francais from 1978. Reward yourself. Save 20 cents on any flavor of General Foods International Coffees. A cup of General Foods International Coffee is always a rewarding experience. Now you get an extra, extra, extra reward with 20 cent savings on any flavor. And that was, a, that was probably worth like 90 cents now, you know, with inflation. The deep French roast flavor of Café Franc Francais, the elegance of Café Vienna, the touch of cinnamon flavor, the subtle chocolate taste of Swiss, Swiss mocha, or orange cappuccino with the enticing aroma of orange. Each flavor is rich, relaxing, deliciously different. General Foods International Coffees, don't you owe it to yourself? <laughs> it's our flavor that makes us special. Ooh, that's a registered trademark? Wow. Kind of expensive registering a trademark, but hey, they're General Foods. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, the current versions are... What, what was it again for the current versions? Max, they, they, they have the Maxwell House branding. I guess they figured branding it with a familiar brand is, is a better concept, but let's see. Yeah, Maxwell House International Cafe France. So it still exists. It still totally exists. Maxwell House International Cafe. So let's see. Is there like a website for this? So there's still a market for this. They just changed the... Uh, I'm sure it's a plastic container now. Hmm. I don't know if there's an actual website. Ooh, ooh look. You can uh, find the page on HEB. I've been to HEB in Austin, Texas. It, it was voted... The United States Best Grocery Store, H-E-B, contains milk. Well, it's not vegan. But is there, is there like, MaxwellHouse.com? And what kind of house is it anyway? Just, like, someone's house? They have, like, a coffee business in the basement? Yeah, my name's Maxwell. I have uh, coffee. I make coffee in my house. There is a – all right. MyFoodAndFamily.com slash brand slash Maxwell House. Kraft Heinz Brands. What? Kraft Heinz is a company now? What, they merged? <laughs> Maxwell House Max. What is that? Is it like a house, like sort of like a royal family, a house, that kind of thing? Maxwell House. Or maybe the guy's name was House, Max House. Hey, man, my name's Max. What's your last name, House? I'm Max House, Maxwell House. <coughs> Let's see. Introduced in 1892 by wholesale grocer Joel Owsley Cheek. It was named in honor of the Maxwell House Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee, which was its first major customer. Oh, wow, okay, so there was a Maxwell House Hotel. Okay, there it is, in Nashville. All right. <clears throat> that so there's there's that answer. Ooh, they have Maxwell House iced coffee. I never saw that in the store. Sw oh, okay, so here's some of the Swiss mocha. 
Oh, what's this? 1892 blend? That looks good. There's a lot of cool Maxwell House products that I, I haven't seen. Hmm. See, all these, all these little rabbit holes you can go down. International, Maxwell House International. Yeah, I, I, I was not, had not been aware that it was, com it, it is completely carried forward. Cafe style flavors, yeah. Even with a similar shaped tin, a uh, tin or plastic container now. Do they just have Swiss Mocha Cafe? Is that, maybe that's the only flavor they have left. Yeah. Okay. How are the current ingredients? Let's see, non-dairy creamer. Hydrogenated coconut oil and corn syrup solids. Great. The same, some of the same stuff. Great. Good stuff. Anyway, we have some more of this nankeen. Yum, yum. Some tea time. So on another topic I touched on earlier, um, there is this uh, solitaire game you can get called PySol uh, Fan Club Edition. And uh, this is... Well, let me read you from their website. This is completely free. It's open source, uh, and I've been playing it a lot. Uh, PySol Fan Club Edition is a collection of more than 1,000 solitaire card games. It is a fork of PySol Solitaire. There are games that use the 52-card International Pattern Deck, games for the 78-card Tarok Deck, 8- and 10-suit Gunjifa games, Hanafuda games, Matrix games, Mahjong games, and games for an original hexadecimal based deck it features include a modern look and feel uses a TTK widget set multiple card sets and tableau backgrounds sound unlimited undo player statistics a hint system demo games a solitaire wizard support for user written plugins an integrated HTML help browser and lots of documentation so I, th I guess this is a, a Pythol means Python solitaire. Python is like a programming language or something. And uh, I guess the original one was made by this guy who abandoned the project. Right? <clears throat> yeah. As of 2004, any work on Pythol has stopped. It has been officially discontinued. So it's something that's open source, can be forked, or someone can start <laughs> kind of similar to what it's like. They can take the original and create their own version of it, right? I don't I don't know if the author's name is here or maybe it was a team of people, but it's grown and they're still working on it. And what's really interesting is there's original games in there that don't exist anywhere else, right? Which we'll get to, but <clears throat> what do I currently have on here? <coughs> I've been playing um Why is it not coming up? It died. What the hell? That's weird. I can't bring it up. Hmm. See, you try to do a demo of something and it stops working. All right, let's try this. <coughs> Come on. Let's do it. And it has really cool music, but the music can be somewhat overwhelming, so I usually turn the music off. <coughs> so... Um, <coughs> every kind of game you can imagine. Though it doesn't have Lincoln Greens, which is on some other ones, which is uh, just like sort of a... Lincoln Greens is like a four-deck version of uh, Relaxed Golf, right? They don't have that in there. But 
they have a bunch of stuff. So my favorite game in here, just to let you know, is uh, let's see, Shisen Show. Shisen Show, right? No gravity, twenty-four by twelve, and I'm using the ivory mahjong tiles. In fact, they have the neo tiles on here, but it's a grid twenty-four by twelve of the mahjong tiles. So this is related to Mahjong Solitaire. Let me actually change it. I don't know why it brought up those Neo tiles. The Neo tiles are nice, but I much prefer the warmth of the Ivory set. Uh, card set. <coughs> Mahjong type. Ivory Mahjong. Yes. And so this game, if you know Mahjong Solitaire, um, this is similar, but you have a grid, 24 by 12, and you have to match uh, two tiles that are next to each other, right? And you can remove them, or any two that match that you can remove with a line that moves mo no more than two times, right? So you so along the edges, you can turn them, and then they're basically one, two, three. So basically, as, as many as, yeah, you, you can only have two changes in direction, and this can take upwards of almost like a half hour to play one of these games. And you can play it without thinking too much, right? Um, <clears throat> you can do other things. So this is my favorite thing to do while, like, if I'm on the phone or listening to an audiobook, for example. Uh, Shison's show is um, <clears throat> the best. Yeah. And this is the best version of Shison's show I've found and it's really very hypnotic and just a really wonderful game just to play in the background. Now, of course, they have what, what you think of as a Mahjong Solitaire. It used to be called Shanghai. They have tons and tons of different patterns. Here's an, a pattern called Owl. Let's see how this works. Kitty, I gave, I gave you lunch. Oh, sort of like these weird owl eyes. And you, you just have to match of these that are available. Um... That's also a good game, but, you know, there's many more ways to play that game. But there's a game I discovered on here called Lara's Game. Mojo, what's going on? <clears throat> Lara's Game. So it's, uh, let's see, special games, orig original, all games, okay. Original games. So there's original games in here that, uh, are, some of these are not available anywhere else. So Lara's Game is one of these. And it's really a fascinating kind of... Um, where is it? What happened to Lara's Game? It's gone. Original games. What? Don't tell me Lara's Game is gone. <clears throat> is this the right version? Text me. What's the matter, Mojo? Hmm. All right. Let me. I'm. I'm assuming it's still there. Lara's game. Yeah. So there's the original Lara's game. Lara's game. Re uh, relax and Lara's game doubled. And the doubled one <coughs> is the coolest one. <coughs> because this is a kind of solitaire I've never seen before. And let's see. All right. Let's play Lara's game doubled. This actually uses uh, multiple decks of cards. I think this uses four decks of cards, actually. 
kind of like Lincoln Greens. And let's see. <clears throat> yeah, let's go to the original Laris game just to, to read this. It says, This game was taught to me by a wonderful woman. Neither she nor I knows where the game originated. It was taught to her by her older sister. This game is dedicated to her. Note, it was taught to her by her other older sister. So it shouldn't really be called Lara's game, but that's what I'm used to calling it, so thus it remains. So this woman who taught this person, whoever this is, uh, <coughs> Oh, Matthew W. Holfield. Okay, Holdfeld. Okay. So this wonderful woman, her older sister Lara, is not the one that taught the game, but it's the other older sister. But it's still called Lara's game. So the strict game, basically, this is how it works. And it Cards are dealt to 14 piles. The piles are organized ace through five, six through ten, and then three face cards, followed by the talent. Yes, cards are dealt to the talent. The rules for this deal are as follows. Cards are dealt to the first 13 piles in order until the 104 cards have been used up, so two decks for the regular Lara's game. <coughs> if the dealt card matches the place of the pile it is placed on, one card is dealt to the talent. That's <coughs> like the talons, like the draw pile. If the card is fa is a face card, one card is dealt to the talent. If the card is an ace, two cards are dealt to the talent. Each time the deal reaches the king pile, two cards are dealt to the talent, and the deal starts over at the ace pile. The four top foundations are built up from ace, while the four left foundations are built down from king. Only the top card of any stack is playable. And the rest of the cards are hidden. The piles at the bottom of the screen represent the player's hand. Whenever a card is dealt from the talon, the player picks up the corresponding pile, places the dealt cards at the bottom of the hand, and plays any cards that can be played, and replaces the hand to the pile that was picked up. There is no redeal. So, essentially, right, there's uh, 13 piles, right, ace through king. And as you're sort of putting one card down at a time, right, if you if you put a five on the five pile, then you add a card face down to the talon. And then as they say, if you have a face card, there's one, and ace, there's two. So you wind up with these piles, 13 piles, and then you have a draw pile, right? And uh, when you draw a card, you pick up, if say it's a five, you pick up pile five, you add that five to the bottom, and then you can look at that as your hand, and you can play cards, right? Again, there's four piles at the top going from ace up and on the side going from king down. The doubled version has four decks, similar rules, uh, but you do get uh, t two redeals, right? And Relax gives you one run redeal with the two-deck version. But <coughs> like here, there's one ace, No, there's a king, <laughs> so you you can play from the what's on the top of the 13 piles. There's a two that go on the ace of clubs. But once you've run out, you can 
draw a card from the pile, in which case this is a queen, so now I'm able to have access to all the cards in the queen pile, right? So that actually, so some of these work. I was able to get a queen of hearts on the king of hearts going down. And then when you're done, you basically put it all back with the one you just dealt at the bottom, and then you you can draw another card. In this case, it's the five, so I'm on the five pile. And it just goes from there. And it's this game I found takes a bit more thinking, so it's harder to play, like listening to an audiobook. But Lara's game is an amazing solitaire game. Very different than anything I've ever known. And uh, I'm very happy to have found it. And you can check it out, too. This Pysol is available, I think, on all systems. I have it on my Android phone. It's kind of hard to use on Android, but I was playing Lara's game on Android. I'm assuming it's on Mac somewhere. It's, it's everywhere. Pysol. P-Y-S-O-L. On Android, I think you have to <coughs> download it through uh, uh, at the F-Droid repository as opposed to the Play Store. It's because it's not commercial. Sometimes that stuff's only available in the open source uh, repositories. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but this is, this is actually a really cool game. But Anyway, <coughs> let's see. I started listening to uh, The Claw of the Conciliator. More akin than the faces of brothers. On these riders, the tide of travelers broke as a wave on a rock, some turning left, some right. Dorcas was torn from my arms, and I drew Terminus Est to cut down those between us and found I was about to strike Master Malrubius, who stood calmly, my dog Triskeely, at his side in the midst of the tumult. What? Seeing him so, I knew I dreamed. And from that... Anyway. Yeah, I think these are from from the cassette version of the audiobook. It's like, turn over this cassette to hear the next part. <laughs> Very 20th century, man. Anyway, let's check out today's show title and art. Uh, it's, uh, today's episode is called Catnaps of Arcane Yachtmanship. It's a pretty wild name, right? Catnaps of Arcane Yachtmanship. So sometimes I go back into the history of the Overnightscape Underground and look at some of my old episodes and the art. So the one that I was very inspired by was Overnightscape 1509, Wheels Today, from July 6, 2018. This art had an Onsug logo at the top in black with a a red background. Then there's the Overnightscape logo in some utterly bizarre font. I forget what that font was, but I've used that a few times. And then there's the phrase Wheels Today, which I believe was from some sort of typography catalog. And um, I was sort of inspired by this and started playing around with making a new version of of this um, style, right, of using this as the base. And uh, <clears throat> last episode actually was one from this series. <clears throat> as you see, that Onsug logo at top, dark gray on black. That's last episode, Capture the Seaboard Marathon, um, was one of the fruits of this labor. Um, but I had the main one, which still used that same brick red color, and I was working on it for a while, and um, I had it say uh, "Wheels Today," and underneath I was trying different phrases. And uh, the one I came up with was "Hypermusement Machine AM," and um, that was a work in progress. Hypermusement Machine AM. I kind of felt like it's kind of good, but I don't know. I'm not really digging it, so continued working on it and as I do sometimes I'm like why don't I put hyper amusement machine am 
And the AM part was just completely random. Like, it really had no meaning. It was just meant to be like, Hyper Amusement Machine, AM. <laughs> right? So I went to the Internet anag Anagram Generator, and I put in Hyper Amusement Machine AM, and saw what kind of anagrams came out. And then I added the uh, English plus obscure words, and I started looking at what it was generating, and none of the anagrams were good, but there were some very interesting words. There was like cat naper, and then arcane, and then yachtmanship came up. So I'm like, instead of it being an actual anagram, it'll be actually inspired by multiple words from anagrams from what originally was there. That's how I came up with catnaps of arcane yachtmanship, because those words were kind of stacked in the list of the, of the anagrams. <laughs> I love that phrase, catnaps of arcane yachtmanship, and uh, that font is uh, IGC Veljevic, or Veljevic, however you pronounce that, <coughs> a font that I remember, I used to be so obsessed with ITC and all their fonts, and Veljevic was one of their, you know, text faces that was uh, a big release back in the 80s or so, so I figured I should use it. It looks pretty good there. So that's the uh, catnaps of arcane yachtmanship, and then I took away the Ansug logo at the top, and I just sort of drew freehand in Photoshop using the uh, straight line lasso tool, that shape that you see there, and colored it a dull yellow and called it a day. <laughs> so I really like this show art. <laughs> see, sometimes there's stories behind the show art. But I think the phrase is rather evocative, right? Catnaps of arcane yachtmanship. So you might imagine some sort of like magical boat that's uh, flying around, then you're sort of uh, taking a nap on it. I like that idea. Napping on a magical boat. And when you wake up, you're like, oh my god, I'm on that magical, I'm on the arcane yacht. The hell? How did I get here? Oh yeah, yeah, now I remember the sequence of events of how I got here. Do you really? Or was those, those uh, memories just uh, implanted? And you have no idea how you got on the arcane yacht. I guess you could say our our big blue marble earth is sort of an arcane yacht. It's sort of a magical boat. Right? This island earth. Yes. Hey. Hey. I just recorded my segment for uh, the Central. We're doing a series on uh, Beatles albums in order. So I just did my segment on the Beatles' third album, A Hard Day's Night. Uh, so check that out. It should be coming soon. Anyway, I wanted to mention that uh, Bob Lament con uh, contacted me over the weekend. He, of course, from Static Radio and uh, his uh, series here on the Overnight Escape Underground called Morning Commute with Bob. And uh, he has been doing this series called um, Priorcaster, trying to find people who were doing Internet radio before podcasting, right? So he interviewed me for the series and a bunch of other people. But he did, I guess uh, there was a big gap in the project. I think the last one was sort of like January 2022, maybe. So he did a bunch, but he, uh, I didn't know about them. So he said, do you want to add these to the channel? I said, yes, of course. So I just added these. Um, uh, interview with PQ Ribber, um, which was recorded, which was released on uh, November 15th, 2022. Then a guy named James O'Brien. I don't know him, but we can hear about his his uh, 
as an internet audio pioneer. And then finally, that, that was uh, January 27th this year, 2023, just a week or two ago. And finally, just a few days ago, an interview with Chad Bowers from the channel here. So three new episodes uh, there. So, you know, whereas uh, January was a record-breaking month for us, 111 hours of content, February has bounded out of the gates. I know we have a lot less days in February. This is, not a, is this a leap year? No. 2023, no way that's a leap year. So we only have 28 days. But anyway, it's, not, it's all about quantity, not quantity, but quality. Luckily, we have both, quantity and quality, on the channel here. Anyway, um, check that out. The, look, here's a little bit of the, uh, the one with Chad. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Priorcaster. I've got somebody here with me today, uh, Chad. And I've known Chad now probably going on at least 15 years, maybe 17 years. So check that out. It's going to interview with Chad of, uh, of sort of about, you know, his work. You know, we, there are some people who were doing Internet radio stuff before podcasting burst on the scene in late summer 2004. Of course, I was one of them and many other people were, too. And so, so was Bob. He, he started his show in 1999. Uh, so he preceded my uh, Bluff Cosm, even though I did start Bluff Cosm in 99, it wasn't a radio thing yet until March of 2000. But of course, I started Bluff Cosm on the last odd day, 11-19-1999. The last day with all odd digits in the date until January 1st, 3111. Anyone listening in the year 3111? <laughs> the next odd day? <laughs> yes. I'm sure some people are. Or does time even exist like that? As I was talking about earlier, I do sort of feel like the past, present, and future all coexist. But it's almost like this, imagine shapes like mountain ranges and stuff of the past and the future. And that this process is constantly changing the future and the past to develop it, evolve it, and make it richer and more interesting. So in that way, uh, all of the past and all of the future are constantly being updated, upgraded, updated and upgraded. So 3111 is just like, you know, over there, that mountain over there is 3111, you know. Yeah, I know. It doesn't make a lot of sense. What do you want? Anyway, in K-pop news, um, as you know, in terms of K-pop, my main, the main group I really, the only group I really care for is uh, Luna, L-O-O-N-A. That's the English name. They're Girl of the Month in Korean. I always forget how to pronounce it in Korean. It's a girl group that uh, started in 2018, but I think it actually, the project actually started in 2016. This guy, Jaden Jeong, had this very high concept that wanted to create sort of the most obscure like pop idol group ever. Like the original concept was that there would be like nothing publicly released. You'd have to like search out these weird forums and pirate areas just to find their music. It's an interesting idea. So there's 12 members and each girl was introduced one at a time, right? So there's this long process leading up. It wasn't one per month, but I think that was the original idea. Um, Leading up to the entire group with their high, high video. Um, And the group basically, um, I would really, and I know people can't really understand, why do you like K-pop? Why do you like this group? And I would say the closest thing you could probably compare it to is if you're familiar with The Monkees, right? The TV show The Monkees, 
and their whole their whole thing, right? This sort of surreal, comedic uh, aspect where they're they are themselves, but they're playing fictionalized versions of themselves in the monkeys, and they have a TV show, uh, right? With and and then they but they're sort of also a real band, and they are also sort of real people. It all sort of merges together, kind of like wrestling with kayfabe. So <coughs> the same thing with Luna. The music is, I th- actually think, fa- fairly good for, for what it is. But the main attraction is all the behind-the-scenes stuff, especially all the members have that, you know, being very silly and carefree and weird and just, uh, right, that those same sort of, like, hijinks as, as, as the monkeys. That's really a great appeal of it. But Luna always appealed more to a fan base outside of Korea than within Korea. But they've been getting bigger and bigger. But unfortunately, as is the story with so many musicians, the company that is running, that owns them basically, has been very abusive. There's been very, very predatory uh, contracts. And um, one of the members of the group named Chu became independently sort of much more popular than all the rest. So she was doing her own TV shows, doing a lot of sponsorships, doing commercials. And uh, rather than sort of accommodating her, the company, I guess, sort of really tried to enforce everything and make her do it. And so she really was doing too much. Eventually she had to sue the company because the contract was so onerous where, for example, um, they would split any profits uh, the company got something like 70% and the artist got 30%, but then the costs were split 50-50 in sort of a classic case of uh, an abusive contract. And they sign these contracts when they're very young. Now, of course, so so she sued to get out of her contract and she eventually won, right? Um, around the same time, they did a world tour. I actually got to see them on this world tour in Times Square, the tour was mismanaged. They would do a performance, and then they did these meet and greets deep into the night. Um, I was there like an uh, almost an hour after the show ended because I was waiting in line to buy a T-shirt, and they were still just starting up the meet and greet thing. Some of the, the members were sit had were, had slings on their arms, had to sit in chairs because they they had no energy to dance, and so many of them were injured or had to sit out or sick because it was simply too much. There was a show like every every night or every other night, and it was not well planned. They're being essentially abused, not to mention the fact that apparently none of them have ever got paid. They owe, in all of what they do, right, they, again, millions of adoring fans around the world, great album sales and videos, millions and millions of views, yet they are not getting paid. They are... L- going further into debt with every single song, with every single video, each individual member is just going further in debt to the company. It's just like a disaster. And then uh, the tour was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. They abused the girls so much. This happened just in the past few months. They then announced that they were kicking Chu out of the group, claiming that she was abusive towards the staff members, and that was after that tour and then the company kicking Chu out of the group. Um, a number of the members f- sued to get out of their contract. So there were 11 left. Chu was gone. 
and I think nine out of the 11 sued, and then four or five of them won a temporary injunction against the company. Subsequently, the two that didn't sue, uh, Vivian and uh, Hunjin, they also were suing. Now the com- Then the company started to issue petitions to these entertainment organizations to disallow the members that got away from doing any entertainment work, so they want to make sure Chu can't work and the other ones that got out can't work, right? Which has further enraged the entire fan base, which has engaged a very successful um, boycott of anything. This, this company is called Blackberry Creative. They've boycotted everything this company does, buying no, nothing from them, not watching any videos online that could generate them any money. It's a, it's a complete boycott. Um, and so they're going to also petition these other members not be allowed to perform. Um, then, so now the whole group is in an utter shambles. It has not disbanded yet, though I think the disbandment news is coming soon, probably. However, and this just goes to show it, this is never ends. Universal Music Group in Japan had a separate contract with the group that they need to come to Japan as a 12-member group and perform and make songs and Right, the Japanese contract is still in effect, even though their relationship with their main company, Blockberry Creative or BBC, is completely destroyed. <laughs> they may have to legally go back and become a group again in Japan. It just never ends. There's endless drama with Luna. It's so sad because you know I really enjoyed it while it was going, and you always can go back and. I don't know if you can. I guess you can go back and watch all the stuff, though. It feels a bit empty now because. Uh, the company is, I mean, and everyone kind of knew the companies were abusive towards the artists, but this just went way further than anyone was even imagining. Um, so anyway, I, I, I did not know that Jaden Jiang, who was the original mastermind behind Luna, who parted ways with the company fairly early on, um, I think his vision for the group was just so incredibly expensive that they had to sort of change direction. Um because there's this whole Luniverse, it's this science fiction epic that's told over the course of all these music videos and stuff. Um, you know, some of the girls are robots, some of them are interdimensional travelers, some of them are from different timelines, right? They have teleportation powers, they have time travel powers, and all that, like just in the videos, like, you know, and so it is very much like. Uh, a wrestler who plays the part of a wrestler, maybe with the same name as the real person, but having a different, they're living a fictional story, right? Anyway, so I, I found out that Jaden Jiang is, and has a new group called Triple S, which I just found out about this yesterday, is a, a group that uh, has similar um, amb- ambitious aspects. And kind of outrageous. So his company is called Mod House. And um, apparently, so there's eventually going to be 24 members of this group, but within the group, they're going to be and constantly shifting around, forming different subunits. And there were subunits in, in Luna as well. So I guess the first subunit in Triple S was called Acid Angel from Asia, or AAA. And they released a song, but the rule that he created was that the, a subunit within Triple S 
kind of like that acid angel from Asia. Like they have to sell 100,000 copies or else they get disbanded, but it disbanded within the larger triple S. So apparently 100,000 is almost impossible. So this group released, an, released a song and then was immediately like disbanded because they only sold 20,000 copies. <laughs> and <laughs> extremely unfortunately, there's also this this whole system of NFTs. Hold on, let me see. <laughs> Listen, anyone that's doing anything NFT related, it's like, it feels like really, it's over at this point. Stop it. Here's what it says on Wikipedia about Triple S. And I don't, I, I don't, I don't anticipate getting into this group or whatever. Triple um, S is a South Korean girl group formed by Modhouse. The group was introduced to the public through a pre-debut project that began in May 2022 where each of the 24 members were revealed periodically, which that sounds very much like, like Luna. They, they aim to be the world's first decentralized K-pop idol group. The members will rotate between the group subunit and solo activities as chosen by fans, as they will be able to participate and communicate with the group, such as deciding the subunits and the content through NFT photo cards called objects, with a K instead of a C. The group's concept is the members have the special ability S that they will join forces and demonstrate their abilities through the dimension, which will be recreated every season with new concepts. So it's kind of cool. I guess triple S stands for social Sonio soul. (laughs) But yeah, acid angel from Asia, uh, yeah, they came and went real quick because they didn't sell 100,000 copies. And apparently there's an app you can get which uh, you have to buy NFTs of, of photos of the members of the group to help them. But, yeah, I mean, I think NFTs sounded like a good idea a few years ago, but now they're kind of a mark of shame in my opinion. I have never gotten into anything NFT-related or crypto-related. I don't know. But let's see what they say here. do do, do. Monhouse CEO and founder Jaden Jung has clarified the controversy surrounding Acid Angel from Asia, the first subunit of the company's girl group Triple S, and commented on whether they have disbanded. Acid Angel from Asia, or AAA, debuted on October 28, 2022, with the EP Access and the title track Generation. Less than a month later, the South Korean outlet Wikitree claimed that AAA had been disbanded after failing to sell 100,000 copies of the record. At the time of the report, the EP had sold under 20,000 copies. Speaking to Enemy this week at Modhouse's offices, Jong answered half yes and half no when asked if AAA was no more, noting that disbanding doesn't have the same meaning within the Triple S system. Units in a group are intended to be temporary, with fans voting on who makes the lineup and on their singles via the app Cosmo. Units will exist for one album unless they meet the 100,000 sales threshold. See, this reminds me a little bit of all that madness of the AKB48 group uh, from Japan. In late November, it was revealed that all four members of AAA will debut within another Triple S unit next year. Zhang added that fans will be able to see AAA again. Read on as Zhang explains the 100,000 copy sales quota, why AAA content is still being uploaded, and the use of non-fungible tokens, NFTs, in the Triple S system. Yeah, so there's a big article here. 
Yeah, I don't know about the whole NFT thing. That to me is, it's just a big, seemingly like a big scam. Um, yeah, I watched a video about crypto and NFTs. It was just really depressing to watch. Um, so many people got, it's basically like these, uh, the, what's the archetype is sort of, of, of the sort of loser that's always trying to, trying to get rich quick, kind of like Fred Flintstone or um, Ralph Cramden looking for the next way to get rich quick. And it really appeals to people who think that they're going to put in some money and get rich quick. Meanwhile, it's actually other people getting rich slowly by victimizing people who think they can get rich quick, which is very, it's very evil in a lot of ways, very evil indeed. But yeah, I don't really think, uh, here's the actual video for Generation. I, I, I think that Luna was unique in that the personalities involved were. Yeah, whatever. I don't think lightning is going to strike twice. Uh, it just, yeah, Luna was just sort of unique phenomenon. And uh, I, I know people have been collecting all the videos um, there's a site called Team Subits that have been subtitling a lot of stuff that wasn't officially subtitled. And uh, hopefully in the future you'll be able to download some sort of massive torrent or something and you can, you, you can experience the magic of Luna for yourself or not. <coughs> in other news, I don't know where I heard about this, but there's a new museum coming out uh, called the Museum of Failure. Their logo says MOX. Red M, Red O, and Green X, Museum of Failure in New York. And uh, I don't know if this is a real thing or it's, it's kind of a, like, a, like just a fake thing, but they have uh, all these failed beverages like Orbitz. Um, what else do they have? Harley-Davidson candles. I'm trying to see... What else they have? They, there were some really good ones here. Oh, the Pippin, the Apple Pippin. <laughs> that was a big feel. Why are they showing a 2600? The Arch Deluxe from McDonald's, uh, New Coke, Crystal Pepsi, Coke Black, Four Loco, right? Easy Squirt, Funky Purple, uh, Ketchup. Let's see what it says here. Making mistakes is a fact of life. It's not a bad thing. The Museum of Failure brings together 159 products and services that were a total flop but also paved the way for other great inventions. Failure is the mother of success after all. Oh, they have that, was it the, the Nokia N-Gage? Yeah, that was a failure. Apple Pippin. Colgate lasagna, what? Colgate had their own lasagna, frozen lasagna? That's wild. Well, they needed to give you something to brush your teeth about. <laughs> so this is going to be available. Oh, here's a video of it. Okay, let's see what they say here. Museum of Failure. Oh, cool. Look at this. Enter the risky business of innovation. Spray on condoms. Come fail with us. Thefailuremuseum.com But it looks like it's a small, you know, it looks like, but it looks like very expensive to get it. It's at this place called Industry City in Brooklyn that I've been wanting to go to anyway. So... 
It just seems rather expensive, though. I, I'm trying to see what they're charging here. I think it's like 25 bucks or something. Uh, let me see. No, $20. $20.50 per person. I guess it's not that bad, but I don't know. It feels like 12 or 10 might have been better. They might fail because they're charging too much. But then they also have VIP admissions, which, in which you get a tote bag. Museum of Failure. I do want the Museum of Failure tote bag, actually. Yeah, I think I probably will go to this. Note to self, go to the Museum of Failure. Okay, we'll have to go there at some point. Starting in March 17th, so that's a while from now. Yeah, maybe I'll go in April or May. Yes. Failure. All right, back on the porch, it's later on. The crew is uh, continuing to work over there. Making some uh, progress on this house. Flipping it. Yeah, I think they had a lot of work to do on that house. But I'm sure it will go for a pretty penny, even though real estate is cooling down a bit. Anyway, from what I was talking about earlier, um, it brings to mind a, a concept that I know I talked about at some point in the history of the show that I will now call the iterative direct, the iterative dimension. Um, related to the idea that, right, so we have this world that has a history from a beginning to an end. Let's say there's a beginning point and an end point and all the stuff that happens in between, right? But as I mentioned earlier, the idea that there is some kind of observer that is uh, uh, refining or ed uh, editing the entirety of history from beginning to end through a succession of stages, right? So we might talk about dimensions of space. We have the three dimensions here in this world we're living in, a three-dimensional volume. And then there's the dimension of time as we can sort of imagine a sequence of right three-dimensional volumes one after the other sort of describing our the position of things kind of like you know frames on a piece on a motion picture uh, film you know of course the fourth dimension can be either a spatial dimension or a uh, what people know of as time anyway so the idea is that all of history, right, um, runs from beginning to end. And then there's another iteration, right, where things are refined, things are revised, things are, um, right, changed, right? So each successive iteration is another version of the world, right? But f the history from beginning to end, and I think it's probably a bit counterintuitive to conceive of it this way, but... So you could imagine... We always think of space travel, obviously. We do space travel on a day-to-day -day basis. We move spatially from walking around, driving around. Then we've heard of time travel, which is you can go to the past. Or we do time travel into the future all the time, right? Each of us moving at a consistent one-to-one -one rate forward in time. So we do time travel. But we, when we think of the sci-fi concept of time travel, we think of skipping ahead and then coming back, you know. Uh, time travel, but then what about iterative travel, right? 
So this, I think, is a bit more mind-boggling even to conceive of, and I don't know if this has ever been thought of as a science fiction um, kind of concept, right? Iterative travel, that is, you stay, for example, staying in the present right here, February 2023, right? We're at a certain iteration. I mean, the thing is, obviously, we don't know that we're at an iteration, but if this is the case, right, the previous iterations would have had a February 2023, right? And the idea is that they're, if you were to go back iterations, they would be less and less rich and complex, let's say. Maybe some of the earlier, probably even getting to the point of having humanity on planet Earth is a mass number of iterations to get there. But then you would have basically, um, uh, what would you say, very basic societies. Uh, you can imagine a history of Earth where um, over the course of time, and by 2023, worldwide, what we now know of as the Industrial Revolution and this great increase in technologies is perhaps representative of later iterations, right? So that when we look at parts of this world where, um, for example, South America and the Americas in general, that was sort of separate from this, the European centric colonization um, people lived in relatively sim- simpler lifestyles for thousands of years ongoing right so can you imagine a whole planet where there really was no drive toward industrialization or anything you could imagine a February 2023 where people are living in in almost medieval kind of con- like you know with farming and Hunting, agrarian societies, maybe feudal societies, like, but there was never any sort of push to, uh, for what we've seen in the past couple hundred years. In fact, even going back in history, the richness of histories, and I'm always very fascinated by ancient tec- texts uh, such as the Sumerian mythologies and and Sumerian tablets that have been preserved from, from possibly three, four, five thousand years ago. You know, we have the Rig Veda, the I Ching, which is several thousand years, maybe three thousand, four thousand years old, right? And But we do see kind of like even going back that far in history, we do see this uh, that this is sort of an advanced iteration, right? And I know I'm not really describing this properly. I'm just trying to flesh out this idea. Um, but a real early Iteration of this, where I am right now in Nutley, New Jersey, and on February, whatever, today's February 7th, 2023. You could imagine in early iterations, there's nothing. There's no life or anything. It's just a big blank. And then later iterations, there's plant life, there's some animals, but there's really no intelligent, there's no humans around or anything. And further iterations then is the development of humanity. And I know this is confusing because we think of the progression, the development of humanity is sort of a, if, if evolu- in terms of evolutionary terms, right? That they started as little little mammals, like little shrews or mice, and kind of became like weasels, and then monkeys and apes, and then became humans, right? Well-known, you know, the whatever, I mean, whatever you want to say about that whole thing, that's a, something that people think about as a process. But I'm saying that iteration-wise, um, the development of 
it's just each iteration in essence makes things more interesting is the idea, right? So you could say that if you go back a thousand iterations, it would be a world that's less interesting, right? So people would just be farming or there'd be less art. There'd be less um, intrigue, less stories, right? So the idea is that it would be fascinating. And this occurs to me as um, a, 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 an angle for science fiction. If anyone has heard of anyone exploring this concept, because I just sort of, I know I've touched on this topic in the past, but I think I'm sort of, as a sci-fi concept, I wonder if it, iteration is something that's been really explored. And it may have been. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Um, but I think it's easy to sort of imagine this moment and place I am now in a previous iteration, right, where things – there's much less. There's less wars. There's less controversies. There's People are just sort of content in sort of a simple life, right? Um, but what I find really interesting is is to conceive of fu- further – I want to say future, but it's really – it's not future and past. It's iterative. So additional iterations, um, higher iterations. What would this porch and me be like in a far additional iteration where things have become much more interesting, right? <laughs> and so to sort of conceive of a sweep of history, like we think of, you know, that that classic uh, graphic showing apes becoming Neanderthals and becoming Homo erectus and then becoming human. And then usually they, for comedy's sake, they, they show a modern person in a sort of a disadvantaged state, you know, hunched over a computer or over a phone or something. But that, but in terms of iteration rather than time. And I do think that there's, a, in terms of this increasing interestingness, in iterations, right? I think that it it's that interestingness, which there should be another word for it. And I know I was calling it absorbi recently. Uh, but like increasing it. So to me, um, a lot of what we have today is uh, exploring information, playing video games. Like for me, playing video games, reading old books, watching old TV shows, just like, you know, the Flute Artney and Zud Botnip, like remembering things from the past and then revisiting it, right? And then it's the nature of the world that we're living in, our daily lives, right? Every Everyone has a place to live. Well, hopefully some people are homeless, but if you have a place to live, you go to sleep, you wake up, you brush your teeth, then you do something. You go to school, you go to work, or you stay home or whatever, and you watch TV shows, you have a hobby, you get together with people, you drink and smoke and make merry and uh, eat, drink and be merry. And you go to sleep again. Like, like so, right, obviously our lives and people talk about how much more complicated our lives are now than they were in the past with all the social media and all the news and all of the information we're processing every day. But in the sense of that, right, level of complexity of and interestingness of our lives, I can certainly imagine February 7th, 2023, 
being in a future iteration being much richer and more content, more stuff going on. It sort of feels like we're in the middle of an iterative process, right? And uh, here comes Romeo the cat crossing the street. Careful, Romeo. Hey, Romeo. It's a neighbor's cat. That's an outdoor cat. Anyway, um, but to explore iterative travel as opposed to time travel or space travel, I think would be a really interesting sci-fi concept. And I'm sort of proposing it as a theory about an aspect of our world so that the things I call PEPs or we call the Mandela effect may be each of us in experiencing advancements of the iteration. You see what I'm saying? That the that we're the same way that we're we can move through space and that we do right move through time seemingly in an involuntary way. We're carried forward in time at a steady rate, but we are being pushed forward in terms of time travel. We do experience time travel that perhaps we are also experiencing iterative travel uh, all the time, right? That, and that the iterations are moving forward. That is what's changing our world. It's not some sinister people in time machines going back and changing the past, right? It is a natural progression of iterations. And, right, the development, the growth of complexity in the past is a part of this natural process of iteration as a, I say natural, but, you know, it, it does seem all of it is, is the product of a mind. There's, right, nature, whatever. It's a whole separate thing. The idea that there is no mind, that there is no God, and there's just nature. Where'd that come from? What's, what's, what designed that? You know, oh, it just is. Okay. That's a whole other topic. But that, right, iterative advancement is a slow process because we're experiencing it right small iterative changes over time but then it's not time though. oh god we're moving forward in time and also forward in iterations right so that I think is very a very interesting so there see I didn't think of that before I was sort of assuming that each of us was sort of in a one iteration throughout our lives, right? But the idea that iter- there could be iterative advancement all that as we're moving forward in time, we're also moving forward in iteration. You see what I'm saying? And that right, all of the weird observations and this Mandela effect where people are remembering things differently could definitely uh, relate to iterative advancement in that um, the past and the future are changing in iterative advancement and right so that when the past is changed through iteration uh, you would think that the memory of each individual human is uh, would be um, updated accordingly but but it seems that there's an aspect, perhaps a deliberate aspect, to make the uh, <clears throat> transformation via iteration imperfect. 
right? Because you could imagine a world like this where iterative advancement is completely unnoticeable, right? Because as the past changes, your memories of the past smoothly are updated and you have no idea anything changed because the entire world, including your memories and all past, um, what's the right word for it? All historic materials are also updated, right? So that you can imagine a world with iterative advancement where it would be completely invisible, right? You wouldn't know. You wouldn't remember the previous iterations, aspects of the previous iterations at all. Or you might say, for the purpose of a human-level experience, to introduce uh, a variance in, in iterative advancement as it relates to memory, right? Because it seems that when it comes to Mandela Effect or what I call PEPs, right, it's what people remember as opposed to what is. It seems like the new past is perfectly represented in the historic record, but it's not perfectly represented in the human memory, right? And so if you were to sort of compare scenario A, where iterative advancement is um, perfectly and meshes with memory and that it's completely undetectable would be one type of way of living, but introducing these sort of random gaps uh, in memory as iteration advances uh, provides a different kind of experience, a level of mystery and confusion that could ultimately be said to be interesting. So adding more interestingness to the whole thing. Perhaps these uh, deliberate gaps in iterative advancement regarding human memory are themselves an aspect of the advancement. Perhaps there was previous, in previous iterations, it was completely smooth, but then introducing these gaps is a further iteration that makes the world more interesting, right? But I think taking this idea as a sci-fi concept and then trying to imagine what a greatly advanced iteration of where we are right now would look like would be really interesting. And I'm just sort of scratching the surface of this as a fictional concept. Uh, but I think it's a cool concept, right? I don't know if anyone else has really gone down this road. Hmm. Is it is is this like something I'm discovering or thinking about, or is it something other people have? And then maybe if I find oh, lots of people have, then that's just a further iteration where iteration itself has become part of the conversation. But. If, it's, if it wasn't for these memory gaps, it's not something – like the reason that I'm talking about it is because specifically that book is so blatantly something that I, I absolutely believe that I would have heard about that. And if it is the result of an iterative memory gap, it reveals iteration to some degree, right? Yeah. Or I could have just never encountered it. I understand that. Indeed. Indeed. So just to put that in your pipe and smoke it. Okay. Just food for thought. Yes. Or tobacco for smoking a pipe of thought. You can smoke the pipe of thought. Hello. Hello. 
Yeah, that's good. Thank you. The postal letter carrier. Yeah. Kind of mind-boggling, this whole iterative travel concept. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Anyways, with that, I'd like to say thank you for patching in to this episode of The Overnightscape. I'm your host, Frank Edward Nora, and we're here in The Overnightscape Underground, a radio station inside a book. Just go to onsug.com. That's uh, O-N-S-U-G. That's short for The Overnightscape Underground. You can also go to theovernightscapeunderground.com. That URL still exists. I was just looking at all my domain names. I have so many, and I keep paying for them. It's like, ugh, I haven't gotten a new one in a long time, but I used to get them all the time. I have them on GoDaddy, so they say some of them are worth like $1,300. I don't know. I don't know if I want to sell any of them. It's a lot of money. It's, it's worth that much. I don't know. Is this something I could, uh, will it be worth more in future iterations? I don't know. Anyways, um... Yeah, just go to onsug.com, O-N-S-U-G.com, to get all the latest shows. Of course, there's also a book, as we are a radio station inside a book. You can buy a copy of the book. It's print-on-demand. A new edition is coming this year. That is my intent. You can also download a PDF of the book as it was released or the current version, which has been quite quite updated since then. As I am on the road to the next edition. Um, yeah, and uh, the archive is massive. Uh, we've, we have uh, been doing this, uh, well, as I would like to say, you know, this all started around 1999. I started, and then in March of 2000, I started Bluff Cosm. In March of 2003, I started the Overnightscape. And then in 2007, I started the Overnightscape Underground. And then in 2009, the Overnightscape Underground became a group channel, yada, yada. It keeps going. Um, so, right, so I've preserved every show that's ever been in this system over 13,000 hours of material and it's all there it says Onsug Radio is is the current archive but my intention for the future is for the archive to reside inside the book uh, either as a f- physically uh, a storage chip inside the book or as a virtual object the audio would all be inside of the book as a virtual object if you're in a metaverse you have the book and then you can listen to everything but for right now, you can get to the Internet Archive. And in the book, you can there's listings of every single show. There's over 10,000 episodes, many different hosts besides me, dozens and dozens of other hosts, so many hosts that have come and gone, the stalwarts that are still around, some new hosts such as Maverick88 that just came on with his post-Arland monologics, right? Uh, it's just a massive world uh, a massive audio world, and now that you know about it, it is a uh, it, it. You can check it out now for the rest of time. We are your radio pals, and you can visit us at any time. It is almost like a time travel kind of thing, and um, <clears throat> you know we are a non-commercial project. If you are, you know, wherever you are, whenever you are listening to this, someone could be listening to this thousands of years from now. Please do whatever you can to help preserve the archive, preserve the book. And uh, spread the word. I have to imagine that as an artifact from the past, this would be uh, amazingly uh, entertaining and satisfying, informative, and life-changing 
perhaps to people uh, in the future, as so much audio has been life-changing for me, especially Gene Shepard's uh, radio shows. Anyway, that's kind of the story. We have kind of a unique style here. Uh, we've sort of diverged from the mainstream world of podcasting almost completely, and we're doing our own thing here. But I think producing worthwhile, strong content all the time. Last month, as I mentioned, we did 111 hours of material. So it's all here. It's all preserved. Check it out. And, of course, coming up next month on March 27th, 2023, I'm going to be doing the 20th anniversary episode, which will also be episode 2000, believe it or not. And then in another 50 episodes, I'll do the Frank, Frank Nora show, 3,000. But don't worry about that. It gets very confusing. But if you'd, I would like you to leave me a message. I have a voicemail system. I'll be playing all those messages on the episode 2000, which is the 20th anniversary. 2000-2020. It's all coming together. And I did get a, uh, a phone number, which represents ONS-20th, Overnightscape ONS. 20th, 2-O-T-H, right? And so uh, using your uh, telephone, you can make a phone call to this number, which is a California number, 949-ONS-20th or 949-667-2084. And I do include that on all the show descriptions from this this time period. 949-ONS-20th, and that's 949-667-2084. People have been leaving messages. Thank you. You can leave multiple messages. I'm going to play them all on episode 2000. And uh, every message is very precious to me and very important. So if you can leave a message or multiple messages, please do. I will greatly appreciate it. If you've been enjoying this show, the shows on this channel, that's, that, that's the way you can, pay, you can pay us back. We don't want money. We want your messages. Thank you. And now in this iteration of the world, the sun is setting. It's chilly. It's a Tuesday, and uh, we're getting ready right now to transition over to an iteration of fun beyond which few have ventured, known as The Other Side. What they're teaching in private school isn't private anymore. Uh-huh. Especially at the Cherryvale Academy for Girls. Uh-huh. Are you feeling romantic now, my darling? Where there's no limit. Uh-huh. Hi. Hi! Sugar! On what you can learn. What? Where a guy like Bubba Beauregard at a girls' school like this has the odds stacked against him. Nine to one against him even copping a look. Fifteen to one against him ever getting a date. Twenty-two to one against you scoring in any way, shape, or form. Yeah! It takes Bubba Beauregard, the animal of the eighties, to make a private school go public. Private school. Sound. 
Hi, Bad Boy West from Hardcore FM 88.75. Just to let you know, the top DJs are going to make you rock over the weekend. DJs like Andy Milch M, DJ Roughcut, DJ Direct, DJ Dicer from Weekend Rush. Judge Jimmy with the reggae show. DJ Flirt. Jim the Music Man. Jim D. DJ LSD. The Rat Pack. DJ Ron. Dave Jameson. And DJ SL. And many more to be confirmed. Right here on 88.75. Hardcore FM. Anybody listening? This is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. I'm reminded of uh, the CB radio. Uh, 
I don't know how many people out there even remember CB radio. Uh, my uncle used to have one for years. Uh, <clears throat> he'd have uh, a CB radio in his truck and a radio station. And uh, the idea would be is that you could call the truck from various places throughout the, the little town and if he had to do a pickup or a delivery, uh, he could easily be reached. Now, when I was a kid, although the CB radio was station was still set up in the shop, I don't recall that there was actually a CB radio in the truck, and if there was, it wasn't really used. So it was sort of before my childhood, I guess, that it was a, that it was a popular item that they used, or a fad, or whatever you want to call it. CB radios, of course, are used by lots of people, including truckers, uh, at least, you know, from the movies that I've seen. One of my favorite movies is uh, Big Trouble in Little China. It's one of those movies that I could watch over and over and over again, and it doesn't fizz me. You don't become bored of it, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty cool movie. I, I, I've always liked it. Anyway, the point is, is that uh, the main character starts out driving around in his transfer truck talking on a CB radio thinking he's all hot it's on the reflexes so he tells his stories and does his talking and just to anybody out there who's listed you know not unlike what you know I'm doing podcasting today you know I'm just chatting out there and saying what's on my mind probably not as cool as he did it but uh it reminds me of the same idea. But sometimes you wonder, you know. I, I don't have a big audience of people out there waiting to listen on my every word. Yesterday, I came across this uh, YouTube subscription. I believe the guy's name is Paul Henderson, 1976. And it's a series of 30 videos, each about 7 minutes long. Uh, all about his move from the age of 14 uh, to present day, coming out of, uh, I guess what you would call a fundamentalist Christian belief. Uh, you know, the whole, if you don't follow our religion, you're going to burn in hell kind of belief system. And his move throughout the years uh, between uh, Christian Christianity and, and agnostic and, and eventually atheism Anyway, I found it an extremely fascinating video series, and uh, one of the, you know I didn't actually watch the videos as much as listen to them, just play them and listen to them on my headphones, and he uh, just weaves a very a very fascinating story. Now, if you do actually look at the views of the videos, though, one might have as many as a thousand views. Uh, the others are in the hundreds, two hundreds, three hundreds, several comments, and. <clears throat> Uncharacteristic of YouTube, I mean, many of the popular YouTube videos have millions and millions of hits. Uh, and if you read the comments, some of the most comments that I've seen on YouTube are just disgusting, horrible things that people say uh, just because they like writing horrible things. It's sort of like a graffiti board, I guess. But, uh, you know, the, for the most part, the comments in these videos are, are quite interesting as well as the videos. You know, I was just glancing at them. And uh, and it's a really interesting series. 
I don't know whether the story's true or not. I have made up my mind on that. I, there's there was a popular video series, Lonely Girl. I don't remember the number. Lonely Girl '89, something like that. And uh, it was it was supposed to be a video diary of this this girl uh, going through uh, life and the different events that happened in her life. And uh, several years later, it was found out that it was fake. It was actually done by a woman who wanted to be an actress, who wrote this whole screenplay up. Uh, to get herself popular, and, and it actually worked well for her, as far as I know. Uh, so this could be along those lines, you know. I'm uh, not entirely convinced that the story that he tells is true. Uh, it certainly has some realistic elements to it. It's certainly a very, very entertaining story, from my point of view. Uh, but I don't know if it's authentic. Anyway... <clears throat> Where where am I going with all this? Who knows where I'm going with all this? Thanks for listening to BeWebCentral.com Radio.
first saw the Mandelbrot set uh, somewhere in the mid-80s, I remember it quite clearly. Uh, we were at a mathematical conference on something totally different, and everyone went along to this exhibition because it was mathematical pictures. And there were these amazing coloured pictures on the wall, and I'd really not seen anything like this before. It's not easy to describe the Mandelbrot set visually. It looks like a man, it looks like a cat, it looks like a cactus, it looks like a cockroach. It's got little bits and pieces that remind us of almost anything that you can see out in the real world, particularly living things. So it has a, a character that reminds us of a lot of things, and, and yet it itself is unique and, and new. The Mandelbrot set is real, an absolute thing, no question whatsoever. Any mathematician or any computer scientist or student in a school can study it and find the same, describe the same thing. It's a common experience. And so such things that can be magnified forever and have infinite precision do exist, but they're not touchable. It's a geometrical shape, an, an icon, if you wish, which somehow embodies as an example a very important aspect of how the world works. Somebody recently actually called this set the thumbprint of God. Now
Hey, Jane, is that your Alice dress? Yes, that's right. It's very pretty, isn't it? And what about the crown? Uh, that's when I become a queen in the last act. How long are you a queen for? Very short time, because it's the climax of the whole play. And it just about matches your hair. It's almost red gold, isn't it? Yes, it's meant to. Is this the first time you've played, Alice? No, I did it on two LPs for Douglas Cleverdon. And is it the first time you've been on the stage? No, I've been in a very small play, but nothing as big as this. Your opening at the Playhouse at Oxford, uh, when was it? On the 15th of December. And you're well into rehearsals, I suppose? Well, yes. <laughs> what about school? Because you're, how old are you? I'm 13 now. So you must go to school. Yes, I have lessons every morning with my tutor. You're working pretty hard. Yes, trying to. You've made a film before? Yes, I've made films, some films. What film did you? I was in Mandy, about the deaf and dumb girl. That was my first film. And then I'd been in some children's films afterwards. And do you find there's a great difference between films and television and playing live on the stage? Oh, yes. I think stage is the best, though, because with films and television, you don't know who's going to watch it. And with stage, you can see your audience and know, you know if they're liking it or not. And that helps a lot, doesn't it? Oh, it does, yes. It have, you, have you got any really favourite lines from Alistair of the Looking Glass? Yes, I think I like Jabberwocky best. Can you remember it? I know the first verse. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the moan wraths outgrave." All mimsy is lovely, isn't yes. it? Yes. <laughs> Thank you.
Rachel Sweet, and I bet you think you're funny. Well, we here at the Comedy Channel want to give you a chance to prove it. So just grab your video camera and show us how funny you can be. Dad, 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 over here. Okay. That's right. Send us your own homemade brand of comedy, and you might see it on the air during my show, The Sweet Life. Now, I know you're probably saying, sure, I'm funny, but how can I compete with Rob Lowe? I mean, his home videos are exciting. Exciting, yes, but I mean, talk about tacky. No, that's not for us. We want funny stuff. Invite us to a family dinner. Take us on a tour of your garage. Use your friends. Hi! What about your Uncle Fred? You know, the one with the hair on his nose. Be creative. It's up to you. Of course, we own the rights to all entries, and you'll never see your tape alive again. But if we show your video on the air, we will send you a new black tape in return. And you'll get this sleek, stylish Comedy Channel t-shirt. Plus the heartwarming knowledge that your small contribution has brought a moment of joy. Dad, Dad, over here has brought a moment of joy to the otherwise drab existence of millions of television viewers. So just send your entries to, over here, Dad, zoom in. Rachel's Viewer Video, Care of the Comedy Channel, P.O. Box 830, Madison Square Station, New York, New York, 10159. But Dad, Dad, why's a little light blinking? Are you sure you charged the batteries this morning?
shock of the new is about an old subject, almost a hundred years old, the art of our own century, modernism. The key word of the new century was modernity. Modernity meant believing in technology and not craft, in human perfectibility, not original sin, and above all, in a ceaseless consumption of things and the images of things. If you were a Parisian alive in 1890 and you wanted to show a visitor what modernity meant, you pointed to this structure. The tallest man-made object on earth, the Tower of Babel of the New Machine Age.
Christian.